Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, November 30th. 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Morning, Rev. Good morning. I want to apologize for the um uh the, the scratchiness and the um the, the the raspiness and the um the 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 Joe Cocker sound of my voice <laughs> this morning. It's um I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's uh, Yeah, there, there you go. That's a good one, Josh. Uh this thing lingers. Still dealing with it. Huh? This thing lingers. Yeah. Um, speaking of lingering, you ready for a good story? First thing this morning. So when I got in politics, one of the, I mean, I enjoyed some of it. I didn't enjoy a lot of the other, um, some of the pomp and circumstance I didn't care much for. I really, and truly didn't some of the storytelling. I I really, I I did enjoy one of the great politicians in South Carolina history is Strom Thurmond. I mean, maybe the greatest, uh, character in South Carolina politics is Strom Thurmond. Um, quite the complicated route he took. To become, I mean, he ran for president in the 60s as a Dixiecrat, um, was in the middle of, you know, segregation and racial strife and whatnot. But Thurman was a character. I mean, he, you know, uh, what it was, he always made his people nervous when he said things before the, the, the media because he would just assume. They were fair-minded and neutral arbiters. And uh, remember in the um, the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing, Josh wouldn't remember this, but remember some of the um, some of the explicit sexual material that was included as part of his becoming a justice or not, mm-hmm. Anita Hill oh, yeah. uh, making certain accusations. And Strom on the end, I think Strom may have been 137 at the time, <laughs> but Strom on the end said, you got, you got to speak into the mic, ma'am. <laughs> Anybody like, dude, you, you, got, you got to speak it to the mic, ma'am. Anyway, um, <laughs> the word linger. So Strom's famous for, or was famous for, um, you know, constituency service. I mean, that would have been his claim to fame. I don't know that Senator Thurman ever, ever took as serious policy making as he probably should have. I mean, he was a man of the people. Um, that's why he got elected and probably would be elected today if he were alive at 227 mm-hmm. years old. Um, people had stories of Strom Thurmond. Um, I remember the time Senator Thurmond wrote a letter uh, from my dad. I remember the time. I can tell you a real quick story. Before ADA was mainstream, and I'm talking about the American Disabilities Act, my sister, you've heard me say, is in a wheelchair. Um, she was confined to a wheelchair from birth, died at 29, um, had spinal muscular atrophy. And we were a little two-bit school and a little two-bit part of our state, and we couldn't make much progress on getting some of the um, ADA compliant issues addressed. And my father and my, my dad's brother was Mayor Pamplico. So my dad went to his brother, my uncle, and said, look, is there anything we can do? I mean, we're not getting anywhere. I don't want to be special. I don't want to be treated any differently than anybody else, but we can't get anything done. And my daughter's having to go around here to go in this building and around there to go in that building. And, I mean, we just don't have adequate. I don't want them to build the school for my daughter. That was not my dad's style. But, but I do want, I mean, if there are rules on the books, let's comply. Um, I don't like complying, but I like school districts to have to comply. So my dad's brother and uncle called Senator Thurman, and I'm serious. In two days, it was like a cement plant. I mean, really? there, there were foundations yeah. and frames and Took concrete trucks and everything you could imagine. And there were ramps going here and ramps going there and ramps going over there, and there were ramps everywhere. And about a week after, you know, the, um, I mean, we never heard a word. Concrete just shows up. 
trucks, framers, um, everything you could imagine. It was not, I mean, it would have been probably, if you're not disabled, it would have been compliant for you. I'm not sure you could have found a set of stairs <laughs> to walk up. Everything was a ramp from there on. So Senator Thurman himself called my dad and said, I don't know how he got the number. My dad had never gave, given money to Senator Thurman. He called um, Senator Thurman and spoke to him like he'd been knowing him for 50 years. He said, uh, Jamie, they get them ramps built. <laughs> and my dad said he felt like, I said, Senator Thurman, there are no steps there anymore. I mean, it's one big ramp. It's not a school anymore. It's one big ramp. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, I mean, like I said, he called his name as if he'd known him all his life. Yep. And my dad said, okay, I get it now. I mean, I understand now why he has endeared himself to so many voters. So in the word linger, um, when I was in Columbia, there was a story told about a prominent supporter of Strom Thurmond's opponent. I mean, th this guy had run against Senator Thurmond. He was a good candidate. He'd given him a, a tussle. And, uh, you know, South Carolina's always not been a real red state. I mean, it was blue for a long time and then transitioned red. But, I mean, they, Jim Hodges was a governor. You know, we've had That's some right. Democrat governors in recent time in South Carolina. Um, not so recent, but recent enough. So um, one of Senator Thurmond's opponents, biggest supporters, passes away. What does Senator Thurmond do? He calls him. Not one of his big supporters, one of his opponent's biggest supporters. And he says, just as he would, um, I'm making up a name here. You ready? Larry, I hear your daddy died. He did. Larry, he was a good man. He never was for me, but he was a good man. He was. I'm Senator Thurman. Thank you for calling. <laughs> he said, what did he die from? He said he had cancer. He said, did he linger? <laughs> did he linger? <laughs> really? <laughs> did, 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 did he linger? <laughs> And then, it's kind of a um, it's a weird R at the end if you grew up where Senator Thurman uh, Thurman grew up. And and I just say this for those of you who believe that politics is rocket science, at some level it may be, but the best politicians I've ever known aren't rocket scientists. Mm -hmm. They're people people. I mean, they, they understand the human dynamic, the relationship that I have with Josh and Rev has with me, and it they never forget that. I mean, it is it is essential. It is in their bones. It is in their political DNA. Um, Thurman was famous for when he'd get out of the car to make a speech. He was famous for more than one time asking the question of one of his younger assistants, is Medicaid or Medicare for the old people? <laughs> Just need that little reminder. And they'd say, Senator Thurman, Medicare is for the old people. So Medicaid for the poor people. And he would go up on stage and, ah, they'll never cut your Medicare. <laughs> <But Right>. he, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, it's just uh, we, we like to. Anyway, the reason I bring this up. I, I was going to say, I've got to actually, and being a transplant to South Carolina, I have everybody who was in South Carolina, lived in South Carolina during time when Strom Thurmond was a senator, probably has an encounter somehow, some way. And I'd met him several times. I mean, we'd do radio station parades, and he'd be in the you know small town parades, so you'd run across him and speak to him. Uh, the, the last time I saw him in person, I was in the Charlotte airport waiting for uh, my flight. And this was, I mean, he was, he might've been a hundred then. This, I mean, he was in his last few years, you know, and he was still in the Senate. And, uh, and I was sitting there waiting for my flight. A flight arrived at the gate and he gets off the plane right in front of me. And he's by himself. I mean, again, um, uh, if he's not a hundred, he's close and he's traveling by himself. And this just, he has a conversation. A man walks up to him. He's just walking right by where I'm sitting there waiting for my flight. And the man, they start talking. 
And the man says, Senator Thurmond. Yeah. He said, uh, where are you going? Going to Washington. He said, well, so am I. Do you mind if I walk with you? Thomas said, sure thing. Can you carry these? <laughs> and gave him his bags. <laughs> and the guy said, sure, give them to me. And walked with him to the gate. So that was my, you know, 10-second encounter uh, the last time I ever saw Senator Thurmond in person. Another quick story here. So the king of somewhere is in uh, is in Washington. He's the king of, I mean, I'm making up a name here. The, I mean, not King Tut, not King who's, I mean, anyway, he's a, um, he would be, uh, Josh, what we were talking about earlier, he'd be an emperor. I mean, he would have been the, uh, you know, the most royal of the royal. And he's in Washington, and he's in the rotunda, and there's a gaggle of people. I mean, there, there are a lot of, you know, politicians and, um, you know, donor class and whatnot. I mean, it's a big, it's a big occasion. And a, um, a, friend's, a friend's of mine's dad was a big supporter of Senator Thurman. And it's not, I'll just make up a name because, I mean, I know the guy's name, and I, he's from around here. It's, I'm a, a Billy. So, so Strom is trying to get through the crowd. Not to get to the king, but get to his office. I mean, he's been around that stuff before. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? He's not that impressed. But there's this big, there's this big gathering for this this foreign leader who's a king. Sure. So Strom's like, I mean, this is my buddy telling the story. He said, my dad's like grabbing the back of Strom's jacket, like, "Don't leave me, Senator. Don't leave me." You know what he's holding <laughs> on, and said he takes his hands and he kind of, you know, nudges him apart. Senator Thomas, Senator Chairman Thomas, Chairman Thurman, Chairman Thurman, Chairman Thurman. You know, and he kind of like making his way. He's taking his fingers. You see me doing this, and he's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, asking people to step aside, step aside. Senator, Senator Thurman said he hardly ever did that. He said, uh, Senator, Senator Chairman Finance, got to get Finance Committee. I said he just kind of got to nudging people out of the part, way, part left of and the right. Crowd, yeah. yeah, going through the crowd. My buddy's father is hanging on to the back of his jacket. Senator Thurman, Senator uh, Chairman of Finance, I didn't get through. Senator Thurman, Chairman of Finance, I didn't get through him. And, and said so about that time, there he is, the king. And all the regalia. I mean, he's just standing there with this big headdress and whatnot. You know, he's just standing there. <laughs> Strom looked at him and said, King, Senator Strom Thurman, chair of the Senate Finance. Billy, King, King Billy. <laughs> <laughs> the guy said, there he is, just standing there. Senator Thurman standing beside him. He's looking at this guy with like a 10-foot headdress on. And he says, King, king Billy. Billy. Billy King. <laughs> And he just, and we just kind of moved on and, and made our way to his office. And he said, everybody was standing in line, waiting to take pictures. And he said, you know, it's, it's, it's as if the Red Seas parted, and there he is, you know, this 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 giant of a man with this big headdress on. King, King Billy. Billy. Billy King. Senator <laughs> <laughs> Thurman. Senator yeah. Finance Committee. I need, to get, I need to get through here. Uh, anyway. That's, that's pretty, uh, and it's funny that, I mean, that whole thing we've just talked about, Senator Thurman, was started by you hearing the word linger or well, saying I mean, the word linger. Yeah, and, and I thought about the word linger, did he linger. But, um, but the reason I, I brought that up is, I mean, he was a, um, he served until he was over 100 years old, and we've lost two giants. Um, whether you like him or not, Charlie Munger's a giant in finance, 99 years old. One of the co-founders of Berkshire Hathaway died a couple of days ago. We paid a little bit of a tribute to Charlie yesterday and today, Henry Kissinger. I don't know. A political world without Henry Kissinger. I was thinking about right. one of the internal components of politics in my life. From the time I was aware that there was a world called politics. Now, now once again, I registered to vote at 40. So it was a bit distant to me. I mean, I didn't care much about it. But I, I don't ever remember a world that involved politics that didn't include Henry Kissinger as one of the prominent players. You know, um, when I was a kid, uh, Jimmy Carter and, and, you know, but Kissinger said, 
and, you know, Richard Nixon and Kissinger said. Um, I, I just don't, I was thinking about this morning, I don't remember a political world that didn't include Henry Kissinger. Yeah, me too. That's one of its, um, that's one of its primary members. Or, you know, um, when you start talking politics, uh, I, I don't know how many times Dr. Neil Thickpen has brought up Henry Kissinger on this show. I mean, he was a, a generational factor in in American politics, um, a complicated man, without question, a highly accomplished uh, political figure, without question. Um, some I read something this morning. He gets a lot of credit for China and a lot of things he probably got wrong with China. But he would have been, I don't want to say the first globalist. I mean, that's unfair. But Kissinger was a diplomat and a, uh, I don't know, a pioneer when it came to globalist policy. I mean, he saw the world. I mean, he would be he would be one of the very first globalists. And I don't know that he called himself a globalist, and I don't know that he, you know, what America first meant to, to Henry Kissinger, but but he did. He was visionary in understanding the world is changing. I mean, it's a very connected place. You know, and Nixon's trip to China, I guess, kind of accelerated or exacerbated that. But, but you know, Kissinger was one of these guys who was, as, as much as Strom was not about the policy, Kissinger was. I mean, he would have been the um, the quintessential policy man in American politics. So on one extreme, you got, you know, the people person, Daddy Langa, and on the <laughs> other, you've got Henry Kissinger, who would have been, I don't know, just the opposite of Strom, but would have been a very, very different sort of personality in, uh, in American politics. 843-661-0937. Let's take our first break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So with that Chuck Berry bumper music, yeah. Sounded like yeah, it. That yeah, that sounds a lot like yeah, Chuck Berry. So that's so Run Rudolph Run, right? Yeah, that I mean, is. Yeah. Okay, good deal. Is that Chuck Berry? Who Isn't did it? That? I think so. No, nah, you're the music aficionado. Don't think it's, so. It's, it's, a, either... it's a it's a Christmas bumper, and it does have that Chuck Berry sound. All right, let's go back to this because Josh, this is interesting to me. This is very interesting to me. So Josh is smiling the entire time we're talking about Strom Thurmond. I mean, he's like, wow, okay. King, Billy, Billy King, Diddy Lenga, you know. And certainly Thurman would be before Josh's time. Before Josh's time. But the point I'm trying to make is Josh is, is looking at me like, there's no way a guy behaved that way. There's no way that happened. Josh, that was the nature of politics. That's what I think we miss. You hear me say condition to conform? We've been so conditioned to conform. Um, characters don't always do what they're told. And when a government wants people to do what they're told, who do they go after? The characters, right? I mean, the larger than life, the um, the the difficult ones, the the contrarians, the malcontents, those who choose to walk to the beat of their own drum, no matter what room they're in. It doesn't matter what room Thurman was in. And and I'll say this about Strom, I, I've read and heard from people who are much more knowledgeable about his political career than I. There ain't a handful of policies that he ever put his name on. I mean, he didn't. He was not a policy warm walk. I mean, he didn't. He didn't sit down in a, in a subcommittee and work through all the minutia of policy. But he understood human nature. He understood the people, and he was very much a character in American politics. And I believe one of the great travesties in our political ecosystem is our basically abolishment of anybody who thinks about being a character. Oh, you think you're walking to the beat of your own drum? Okay, here's an ethics committee. You think you're doing your own thing? Okay, here's another um, issue you got with. And, and we, I mean, I really believe that. And it's kind of the punitive nature. I mean, you're nodding your head here. Oh, yeah. It's kind of the punitive nature of government. It's um, We've accepted that.
that government is not there to protect, you know, the Constitution. This goes back to my central argument of the Constitution and its, you know, intent is to not protect the the government from Strom Thurmond, but rather Strom Thurmond from from the government. And I think one of the great travesties in America today is how few characters we have. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Elon Musk told someone to take a hike yesterday. And <laughs> yeah, I cleaned that up so about as words. well as I can. Yep. Musk is a character. And Musk is at a New York Times. Uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin is a uh, CNBC personality. He's a financial guru or guy that uh, he's a talking head on CNBC is what he is. But he's also on staff at the New York Times. And they were hosting um, some sort of a media forum. And Musk comes on in his uh, kind of a bomber jacket. I mean, everybody else is wearing Hickey Freeman and in Oxford and all these, you know, custom-made, not-off-the-rack suits. And Musk shows up with some sort of, um, I almost got like sheepskin or something, <laughs> sheep, sheep fur, you know, uh, bomber jacket or something. I mean, he walks to the beat of his own drum, right? Yep. But but Musk is, um, and, you know, Andrew Ross Sorkin tried to ask a real complicated question and, you know, basically about uh, Disney in particular, not advertising on on um, X or Twitter any longer. And Musk basically said, I mean, we can't say exactly what he said, but you can, it's on Twitter today. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of gone viral. Yeah, go blank yourself. Um, and, and Andrew, what do you mean go blank yourself? He said, I mean, if you're going to blackmail we with money, and I mean, holding back advertising dollars is, is I mean, that's blackmail. You do this or you don't get any advertising dollars. And Musk said, you know, go, go blank yourself. I'll do what I want to do. I'll run my business the way I want to run my business. Now, now, Musk can do that. Because if Twitter fails, it doesn't change his life. I mean, he loses a lot of money, but I mean, Elon Musk is going to be okay. He's got Tesla, and he's got Starlink, and he's got some other. Uh, what what's the um, name of the SpaceX? SpaceX. I mean, yeah, but he's got a lot of other the irons in the fire. Sure, I mean, you know, there's um, there's some places he makes a lot of money, and some places he doesn't make very much money. I don't know what his intent is with Twitter. I will say this: the world today. And I'm talking about the body politic would be fundamentally different if Elon Musk hadn't bought Twitter. But they were already rigging the game, and they were becoming more and more and more prominent. Facebook was in decline. Twitter was kind of um, on the rise. So, you know, as and we know that the people at Twitter reached out to the people at the FBI, or there are certain things we can do to help you guys suppress certain stories and, um, you know, I, I guess incentivize or, or maximize the um the exposure of some of these other stories, content moderating and um you know censorship and all these other sorts of things. It must doesn't buy that. I mean, we can be we can be suspicious all we choose to be, but nobody can prove anything. Right. All I we mean, did was complain. Sure. I mean, we, you know, we, we yell and scream else. and say, "Wow, why do why does it seem to me that I'm getting far more stories that proclaim the virtues of the left?" Instead of, you know, giving the right the benefit of the doubt. So Elon Musk, and I mean this, um, if Donald Trump gets elected, and I think he will, if Donald Trump gets elected, he can thank Elon Musk to some degree. Because when you read the media, you don't find stories encouraging Trump. I mean, it really and truly, um, this, this, uh, this Haley rise is a concoction of the mainstream and political media. There is no, I mean, she has bumped. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Nikki has had a bump at the, at the expense of probably Ron DeSantis more than anybody. Well, Tim Scott got out. But there, there yeah, but I mean, there, there's no rise here. Right. I mean, it, it's a, 
when somebody gets out, your numbers eventually go up, right? Would make sense. So, so when did. Tim gets out, I mean, she gets a little more of the Tim Scott vote. Trump gets some. I mean, everybody's numbers go up. Um, I saw a number this morning I think you'll find interesting. In South Carolina, because I want to argue about this today, Drew McKissick will be with us at 8.05. Um, Drew may not come back after today, <laughs> but I want to know this. How can Nikki Haley consider herself um, a threat to Donald Trump when she is at 24% in South Carolina and he's at 53 When DeSantis gets out, I mean, the, the most recent polling, and this is Monday and Tuesday, today's Thursday, Monday and Tuesday, polling in South Carolina. You ready? Trump 53, Haley 24, DeSantis 11. When you put it, you know, a two-person race, Trump 64, Haley 31. So Nikki has a better chance of, 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 of beating Donald Trump if Ron DeSantis stays in the race. That's the narrative. But instead of that, it is Nikki Haley is surging. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no surge here. There's a little bit of a bump. <coughs> She's getting a lot of media attention. Yesterday, Jamie Dimon said, even if you're a liberal Democrat, vote for Nikki Haley. The Koch brothers have endorsed. Um, a lot of other Wall Streeters. Uh, Ken Langone of Home Depot fame. Um, and I just think we're, I mean, the people that are, if Nikki Haley knew who her voters were, she would have kept the, the Koch brothers endorsement on the down low. She would have asked Jamie Dimon, hey, don't call my name in that meeting on Wall Street. But she doesn't. I mean, she's giddy with the attention. She's giddy with the fundraising. She's going to be incredibly well-funded because all these people have enormous amounts of money, and they're going to try to buy the election. Someone asked me about Trump on the field at Williams-Brice Saturday night, the Clemson-Carolina football game. And I said, you know, I've got no problem in the box. Um, actually, ate lunch yesterday with a former board member, and I asked him, what would you have done? He said, that's not fair to me because I'm not in the room when, you know, when the, when, when the athletics department pushes back and, and the governor's office calls the board or the president or whomever the governor's office called and said, we really want this to happen. I would have, I would have liked to know a little more as to how much the athletic department was pushing back. But someone asked me, okay, how many people wanted Trump on the field? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that the students thought long and hard about whether they wanted Trump on the field or not. I would imagine the young, the, the chair of the young Democrats at USC and the chair, <coughs> excuse me, of the young Republicans at USC would have cared. Um, but I did say this. I think Trump wins the upper deck 80-20. He wins the lower level 60-40. He loses the club level, an executive club, probably 25-75. I mean, that, that's where, that's kind of, a, I mean, to me, that's a pretty decent illustration. You've got the upper level. That's where the people who don't have a lot of money, they're doing all they can. Uh, they want tickets. They want to go to games, but they're not making a big financial commitment because they can't. So you stick the peasants up on the top row of the upper deck. They look like ants running around down on the field. But you're at the game. You're having a big time, and you're either a tiger or a gamecock. So the upper deck goes for Trump 80-20. I mean, that would be what Jamie Dimon perceived to be the peasants. Um, the lower level, that's the little, I mean, they're a little well-heeled. There's a little, now, I'm not talking about in a general. I'm talking about in a primary. Um, he wins the primary 60-40 in the lower level. He loses the club level. He loses the um the 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 upper crust behind the glass and some of the boxes at Williams Bryce. And he would probably it'd probably be the same at Death Valley. But that club level, that exclusive seating area that costs you a lot of money to sit there. Why? Because he's blowing up the machine. Jamie Diamond doesn't want the machine messed with. Why? Because Jamie Diamond's got a front row seat. He's got a gold card uh, that <laughs> allows him access. Sweet the you, you better believe it. 
843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, I'm a little bit hypocritical when I say history is an indicator, but you can't pay attention to history because Trump kind of broke the mold. So I'm very inconsistent in trying to figure out, okay, Trump is a different political dude, and he's created this different political, you know, environment, but does history still apply to some degree? I went back and looked at the NBC News poll November 2011. I mean, I don't know why I did that. That would have been the, the last time a Democrat was running for re-election. Maybe that's why I looked. Um, I know that's why I looked. Last time a Democrat incumbent was running for re-election, and a year out, in November 2011, Obama was 49, Romney was 43. Obama never trailed Romney in any poll. There were a couple of uh, you know Republican paid-for polls that had Romney in the lead. But in November 2011, a, a Democrat seeking re-election was at 49. A Republican challenger was at 43. Today, in November of 2023, the next time a Republican runs, excuse me, a Democrat's running for re-election as an incumbent, Biden's at 44, Trump's at 46. Now, you know, what happened in the run-up to the Romney-Obama election I don't know. I mean, I don't remember. I know that Trump always argued that was the election that we should have won. I mean, Trump, Trump says in one of his serious moments, I mean, when you hear him talk about this, he appears to be a little more serious than some of the others. But Trump said one of the things that kind of propelled him, he'd always toyed around with the idea of running for office, but one of the things that kind of propelled him to make that decision was Romney losing that election that should have never been lost by a Republican. All I remember about that election is the debate between Romney and Obama, where uh, the CNN the moderator. Big, the big girl, Candy Crawley. Yep. She yeah. got in and involved herself and contradicted and pushed back on Romney. And Romney was actually right about what are you saying. And remember the, what was the line about uh, the 80s? 80s called foreign policy. Foreign, yeah, yeah, foreign policy back. Yeah. Um, I remember that well. And Candy Crawley got, you know, I mean, she, she got celebrated in the mainstream media for oh, yeah. interfering or making herself a part but, of but, but the But Romney debate. seemed to give up the fight. At some point, well, you know, Romney, because he, he was in a good position to but, win, but he's never been a fighter. Yeah, I mean, you know, R R Romney wants to be a statesman and he wants dignified and he wants to be, you know, he's uh, anyway, he's full of himself. Um, but I, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And then I went back and read and We touched on this a little bit yesterday. Um, the betting averages. Trump is in a better place, really and truly, than any Republican since Reagan. I mean, when you look at the odds, and, and once again, the American betting houses don't allow gambling on uh, DraftKings and some of these other, I mean, they don't let you gamble on uh, the presidency. But right now, Trump's odds, the 36.3% chance that he wins the presidency, Joe Biden's at 27.6%. Reagan and for his reelection? I mean, yeah, I mean, George W. Bush was never this far ahead. Wow. Because um, remember how. Strong. I mean, didn't Reagan win 49 states well, I mean, but, but, in his re-election? And, and Reagan was in a better place than Trump. Right. But there's not been a Republican since, since Trump, yep. since Reagan, that has been in a stronger position as, um, as Trump is today. So, you know, 36.3% chance that Trump wins, 27.6% uh, that Biden wins. Uh, we're, we're about, what, 45-ish days maybe 46 days away from the Iowa caucus. And, and I try to play these games out. I try to say, okay, what could happen? What can happen? What will happen? What might 
happen. Um, and Drew and I will probably debate this this morning at 8.05. I don't see anything that can happen. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I don't want to be too cheerful today. I mean, I was the bearer of bad news for the last two days, talking about the economy and house payments and finance and car payments and too much month at the end of the money. I don't see any way Trump loses. Yeah, just don't be too overconfident. I just, I, I'm looking at the I data. Mean, I hear, hear what you're well, saying. I mean, it's a snapshot. Right. Now, will I say that a month from now? And I don't a, know. There's a, there's a long time between but, now but, and next well, November. I, I've, I've said that over and over and over again. But if somebody had a gun to my head today and said, who be who's the president in November of 2024? Donald Trump. I mean, if somebody puts a gun to your head and you're a, uh, you understand anything about data, you have any ability to comprehend politics at all, and if somebody puts a gun to your head and you don't say Donald Trump, you're not doing the smart thing. Now, I get it. I mean, per- emotions and personalities and all these, and a lot of things can happen. But, I mean, the gun at your head didn't continue to pun, well, this may happen or that may happen or this may change or that may change. No, right now. I mean, right now, at this moment in time, it's hard for me to find a way for Trump to lose. Biden has a record, and it sucks. And they're trying to sell Bidenomics, and nobody's buying Bidenomics. Um, some of the Wall Streeters are now arguing that the markets are pricing in, lowering rates sooner than we anticipated, um, lowering rates. That, that gets a complicated. And, I, and I, yeah, I mean, that could be a, a bit of a tailwind for Biden. I mean, if we get to the second quarter of next year and rates begin to go down and the economy, I mean, I, I still think 2024 is going to be a very complicated financial year. Um, I think the economy is going to have its issues in early 04 or 24, uh, mid-24. Maybe the economy starts getting a little bit better by the last half or last quarter of 2024. But but right now today, I mean, it's hard for me to find a scenario that Trump doesn't win. Things can change. Things will change. There's no doubt about it. But, um, but when you look at where they were in um, 2019 and where they are today, Trump is in a 12.2 percentage chance or percentage odds better than he was, excuse me, better than he was in 2019. He was down 2.3 in 2019. He's up um, 9.9. That that's pretty wild. I mean, that, that's that's a huge swing uh, one from another. And you know, when does the GOP decide that this is over? I mean, I get what Drew's saying. I mean, we want to get everybody back on the team, everybody back in the fold. We want to, you know, we want to have a hotly contested, but we're not having a hotly contested primary. My question to the GOP leadership is, has, has, has any candidate ever been this far ahead for this long a period of time? I mean, that may be a good question. Let me write that down. Has any candidate been this far ahead for this long a period of time? So it seems to me that the GOP would be in its best interest and, and self-serving interest to adopt America first, to basically agree that, hey, it's obvious this is where the party has decided to find itself. We've got to, whether we like it or not, I didn't say you got to embrace it, but you got to adopt it as part of the platform and agenda and begin to build a party based on the values and ideas and policy positions of, of America first. One thing that I'm kind of proud of, I've said for uh, seven years now, uh, that would have been jumping the gun. I've said for five years now that I thought two of three GOP voters, when given the opportunity, would vote for an America First candidate. And it seems that's about it. I mean, I, you know, we were told for a long time, well, that's not the majority of Republicans. It's only a third of the Republicans. 
Well, I mean, a third of the Republicans are uber loyal to Trump, but about two-thirds of the Republicans are loyal to the America First mindset, the America First agenda, the America First policies, and uh, and where that goes uh, from here. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. Back in just a few moments. It's Thursday morning. Reggie Armstrong is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Too cold, but doing well. Yeah, it is cold. He's got his jacket on. <laughs> you look warm, man. We're yeah. staying here long. It'll be warm, though, with all this equipment and hot air that we uh, that we. Yeah, uh, I contribute to that. Yeah, well, you, you do, but you're you're one of the professionals that join us on Thursday morning. So you gave us a little bit of a heads up a couple of months back about the the, the history of November, mm-hmm. December, right. end of year. Are we following um, the path of history? And does that tell us anything about what may lie ahead early next year? Sure. Good, good question. So uh, even a few weeks ago, the market, you know, rarely has three negative months. And as we were talking, I can't remember exactly, first week of, of November, the uh, the market had been down three months in a row, August, September, October, about 10%. Had, you know, taken a decent little hit. Small caps were down like 17%. It was pretty harsh. And so the, the market was dual rebound, but also, as I mentioned, First of November begins the historically good six months of, of the year. It's, you know, we call it seasonality. Also, Thanksgiving through Christmas tends to be a very positive period. So what's happened the last 30 days? Well, well, I've got, I prepared, so I got a couple of numbers. I figured you might be asking something like sure. this. So uh, the Dow is up about 9%. Again, past performance, you know, no guarantee of future results, but this is last 30 days, last one month period. Um, Dow's up 9%, S&P's up 10.5%, NASDAQ's up 13 Foreign stocks are up 10 You know, bonds are up, you know, bonds have gotten smushed a little bit too. Uh, yields have been coming down. Uh, bonds are up about 45 Municipal, that's aggregate bond index. Municipal bonds are up 6 And long-term treasuries, 20-year treasuries, they're up 9% last 30 days. As there's this kind of a relief that maybe we've seen the worst of inflation and maybe the economy. Well, you know, the, the bonds and the stocks don't quite agree where the economy is. But even small caps and mid caps were up about nine. Real estate investment trusts, despite some of the concerns in the corporate sector, they were up 12. And uh, you know, gold has broken to you know, kind of recent resistance. They kind of, It's kind of been poking up, but it's up only about 2% the last month but it's it's you know it's it's up over 12 this year and so you know gold is poked us so basically most assets fell for three months and they've had a they've had a kind of a real violent rebound now the challenge is is that too much too fast and i would suggest just like hey we went down too much august through october ken uh, now we've gone up so much that even though we're in the seasonably great time, a pause here for a week or two, give back a few percentage points would be perfectly normal before we're heading into kind of a year-end rally. Again, those these seasonality <coughs> factors, um, until something is more important, they, they do tend to happen. So, for example, uh, during the presidential election of 2000, Bush versus Gore, you know, there were a lot of other factors. You know, our economy was sputtering, even though we didn't quite realize it. But the real factor ended up being that we had this uncertainty of the election results hanging in Chad, if you, those of you old enough to remember. And because of that, that kind of overrode it. You know, people got very nervous in the markets. And so the, the year ended negative. You know, we didn't have that kind of year-end rally or the post-election rally. So bottom line is, we don't know, but I would guess that after a 
brief pause. We would end the year about where we are now, maybe a little higher, a little bit more of a rally. Uh, if the, if someone is way underweight stocks, they may want to look at a, you know, kind of miss this last 10% move. The market gives back a couple of percentage points. Maybe you kind of get, get back to where you wanted to be. Uh, but keep in mind, while current data, well, I, I put it this way, rear view mirror, mirror data, like the gross domestic product looks very good. Current data and especially leading economic data still says, be careful. Things, things in 24 may not be as smooth as you think. Well, so, let, let's go there one second. I mean, okay. I want to, I want to get your opinion here. Sure. Um, Reggie has numbers that he has um, embedded. I don't. I just make them up as I go. And I hope you don't. Well, you know, you know, fifty-seven percent of all statistics are made up. There you there. go. And I, I, I would be in that category. Um, but no, in, in all seriousness, it was a. Um, I mean, last weekend was rivalry weekend. One of the great rivalries of my youth was Nebraska and Oklahoma. I, I mean, when the, when they played, yeah. that was oh, a big yeah. deal to me oh, as yeah. a kid. Um, and then we found out a lot of folks in Oklahoma and Nebraska were taking steroids. <laughs> but they had been successful, stick with me, Reggie, because they'd figure out a way to mask when they took some of the blood samples and some of the testing. Mm -hmm. There was some of these, um, they had scientists and doctors mm -hmm. giving them some sort of a, my point is this, and, and I'm going to get your take here. Could stimulus be so <sighs> disguising itself? Mm -hmm. As economic reality, Do, mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon said it, and you will agree to this. Mm -hmm. We don't know what impact or effect that much stimulus has yeah, in no. that brief period yeah. of time. So, so when we talk about 2024, yeah. do we, do you, does anybody in your field of expertise mm -hmm. still understand how much stimulus has masked mm -hmm. economic reality and where the market should be fundamentally? Right. I, I think that's probably the X factor of, of, the, the economy and the markets right now is that no one understands, not Mr. Diamond, not Mr. Gunlock, not myself. You know, we, we, it's, I mean, we flooded the economy. It's why we, in fact, it's surprising that we only had, you know, 10% inflation. In fact, if you, I'll talk probably about this maybe next week or the week after. I'll talk about how the inflation spike has permanently risen costs. And, you know, permanently. Got, permanently. That's the key word. And so we'll talk about that at a different time. But the, it, it's such a huge flood. Now, M2 money supply growth is actually negative right now. But if you look at how much extra money supply was added, we're still way above the trend line. There's still a ton of money there, even though it's it's coming out of the pool a little bit. And so, no, we don't understand. And we don't understand what that means. I mean, think about it this way. If there's a ton of money and they wrote a bunch of stimulus checks, <coughs> Mr. and Mrs. Average Joe Sixpack, they've spent that stimulus check, and they're, they're back borrowing on credit cards. We see that in the data. But if you're a school district or a state or a municipality that got a, a millions of dollars and you start doing a road improvement project, that can employ people for nine, 18 months, and, and that, that money's feeding the economy. So it, I think it does distort, and the danger, in my opinion, is if the if the wrong lesson is taken here, oh, all we have to do is write checks. When the blow up comes, in my opinion, it, it will be way worse than people think. But you know, in my opinion, it is having a huge effect. And for all we know, it's distorting the economic cycle. And and the question is, is you know, unless things are completely different than we ever understood there will be a price to pay. Yeah. And that's maybe a, a conversation for another day. And that's what you've always maintained. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. question, a lot of other questions, people need professional advice. 
That's what you're in the business of giving, becoming that financial yep. partner. How can someone reach out to you or a member of your team? Sure. Just give us a call, 843-292-9997. You can check us out in advance at armstrongwealth.com if you wish. Okay. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, guys. Bye-bye. And if, and if you hold on to that for a second, Reggie is, is out of here now, but if you, if you hold on to that for a second, and this is not, I mean, this is not advanced economics. I mean, this is, I mean, if it were advanced economics, I would defer. Well, I'm arrogant enough to think I could understand it, so I'd probably try to pursue some resolution. But, but in all honesty, it, it really goes back to, I mean, we can complicate these things as much as we choose. And, and, I, and I guess, you know, a distinguished economics professor from Yale and a distinguished, uh, you know, uh, economist from uh, Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, I mean, they have an obligation to offer more detailed and specific uh, dissertations and understandings of the economy. But, but here's the fundamental, and it goes back to the housing situation we find ourselves in. And this is not a knock on home builders. It's not a knock on developers. It's not a knock on, on real estate guys or mortgage bankers. I mean, it's not. It's just, it's a reality. Interest rates were a stimulus. Liquidity infusion was a stimulus. And it had a, a, a dramatic effect on our economy. And I think Reggie's the most honest broker there is when he says, we don't know. I mean, Jamie Dimon doesn't know. He speculated September, October. But, but he said, I don't know how long it takes um, to get the M2 money supply or get the liquidity balance in, in, in some place of equilibrium. We don't know. Here's the problem, guys. We increased liquidity by a third, roughly, from 15 to $22 trillion, the M2 money supply increased. The price of a house went up roughly a third. I mean, there's a correlation there. I'm not saying it's all because of this. I would imagine in some of the um, less desirable places, you didn't see that big increase in, um, in, in the price of housing. In some of the hot markets, you probably saw a little bit better than that. But on average, housing increased in about two and a half years by 33%, about the same amount that we increased the money supply. How do you not believe there's a correlation there? I mean, that, that's, I'm not a rocket scientist. I'm not an advanced economist, but, but I don't have to be to, to, to say, okay, there's some correlation there. Here's what happens, and here's where Reggie was touching on. So we're beginning to quantitative tighten. Now, I would question whether we really are or not, because we're taking about, what, 60 or $80 billion offloading from the Fed's balance sheet. So, so the Fed is getting out of the business of about 60 to $80 billion per month in, in credit. But, but the government spends about $1.6 or $7 trillion that it doesn't have. And once again, it's not that easy. I mean, money in, money out. I mean, it gets real complicated when you involve the Fed. But, but here's where the consumer finds themselves. So the, the infusion of liquidity from 15 to $22 trillion in M2 money supply created unbelievable inflation. I mean, inflation like we've never seen uh, before in American history. And now we're beginning to quantitative tighten to try and take liquidity out of the economy but inflation is not going to go down. I mean, it's permanent. When you say inflation only increased at 2%, that's not a deflationary period. Nothing's going down in price. Now, will it? Larry said yesterday that he thinks some things will. I mean, I don't know what he bases that evaluation on. Um, it's hard for me to believe that the, the $6 sub sandwich in 2020 that is now nine fifty is going back to 6 I mean, that's just hard for me to fathom. It may. I may be wrong. I think the interesting part of this is Reggie said, I don't know. But I mean, I'm, I'm confessing, I don't know. I don't have any idea. But we're beginning to try and 
get the M2 money supply back to a reasonable. We know that $22 trillion is unreasonable. Now, I don't know if the, if the, um, if the masterminds in Washington understand that or not. Um, it would stand to reason that maybe they don't. Um, I mean, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. How many times have I said that? But, but I'm smart enough to know that if you increase the money supply by a third, things are going to get more expensive. They just are. Well, all of a sudden, you start constricting the money supply. I, I guess, Rev, in hopes that this, you know, the $9 sub sandwich will go back to six fifty. The $425,000 house will go back to three fifty. The $80,000 Ford or Chevrolet pickup will go back to $62,000. But I don't anticipate that happening. And right now, the consumer finds themselves, you know, that they had the stimulus. You had interest rates so low that acted as a stimulus. Now the interest rates are back where they probably should be, historically averaged. You've got the, um, the quantitative tightening trying to take some of that excessive liquidity out of the economy, but things aren't getting cheaper. I mean, they're slowing down and getting more expensive, but they're not getting cheaper. So what happens? $1.6 trillion in non-housing debt turns into $5 trillion in non-housing debt. Still got to have a sub sandwich. Still got to have a roof over my head. Still got to have a way to work back and forth. But my money has been significantly devalued. I've got these obligations and responsibilities. i got a life to lead, and I don't have enough damn money. So what do I do? I, I, these, these credit cards. And now we see delinquencies in the credit card sector. Revolving credit is once again $5 trillion. And, you know, do, do, do we believe the answer to borrowing too much money is to borrow more money? I mean, for the last 20 years, that's kind of been our strategy. When we realize we've borrowed too much money, we start borrowing more money. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. It seems to me the dominant economic theory in America today, and I'm talking about the Fed. I mean, we, we've done this before. The Fed's about 80%, maybe 85% of the Fed's economists are Democrats, registered Democrats. That's kind of an interesting article I read um, in, it might have been the New York Post a couple of years back when we, they basically went and reviewed some of the voter registration of uh, economists who work for the Fed and are contracted by the Fed. I mean, it's more than you can imagine. It's like 1,300 economists that work directly for the Fed or are contracted uh, via the Fed. And 85% of the 1,300 economists were registered Democrats. And when I hear registered Democrat economists, I'm on, I mean, it's somewhere between Keynesian and modern, modern monetary theorists. So it was stand to reason that they believe some of these, some of this craziness is normal. Uh, I mean, if you ascribe to Keynesian economists uh, or, or, you know, modern monetary theorists, then, you know, I, I guess when you make decisions individually and collectively on behalf of the Federal Reserve, you make it from that premise, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not arguing that That's what every, you believe. I'm not arguing that every Democrat economist is a Keynesian economist. I'm not arguing that every Democrat economist is a modern monetary theorist, but I am arguing they're heavily influenced and biased by um, those theories. And when it comes to debt and federal spending and quantitative easing and tightening and whatnot, it's, it's, it stands to reason that if, if 80% of the people are giving advice to the Fed chair and some of these, um, some of these uh, what is it called, the, uh, the open committee, uh, the, the open banking committee, anyway, it, the ones that set the Fed fund rates and 
you know, you read some of the minutes from the Atlanta fan, the Philadelphia fan, the New York fan. I mean, it's heavily influenced by people who believe that, you know, the government stimulus is very often the answer to, to our problems. And I, I'm not arguing. I mean, I'm thinking a, in a perfect world, no stimulus is best. But I'm not arguing that when a pandemic hits or when we have a war or when there's some, you know, uh, humongous episode in America, and I'm talking about 9-11. I mean, I'm not saying we should never deficit spend. But, but I think deficit spending every time, you know, the wind blows is just not sane policy. And we've kind of adopted that as, um, as somewhat normal. And, I mean, there's a big debate. Rev and I were talking during the break. There's a big debate in the economy or in the world of economists. When does interest rate become a stimulus? I mean, it, there, there's a number there that, you know, stimulates growth. But, but it artificially stimulates growth. It's, it's not real growth. It's almost like, um, you know, this, this crazy theory I have about, you know, everybody participating in the economy gets exactly what they deserve. I accept that's impossible. But it's fun to stew on. It's fun to think about what exactly does Dave Baker deserve to get paid? What exactly do I deserve to get paid? What does a plumber deserve to get paid compared to a pastor or a welder or a doctor or a business owner? I mean, I've just always felt that would be the, um, the, the I don't know, the, the, the greatest hypothetical theory you could ever come up with to kind of negotiate or factor in all those parts. But, I mean, the same thing applies to interest rate. At some point in time, the interest rate artificially inflates economic activity. I mean, it just does. It artificially inflates the price of a home. I mean, it, let's, let's say that, um, that the, the, the point of equilibrium at the price of a home is 5%, 6%, whatever that number is. I mean, you know, once again, I don't know what the number is. You don't know what the number is. But we know it's not 2.5% on a 30-year note. I mean, we know that's not normal, and that creates some sort of stimulus. And, and what happens to the price of an asset when you can finance it for that much cheaper than average. I mean, the price inflates, artificially inflates. It's not worth any more. Um, you, you got these um, people are buying homes or are they buying house payments? And most people want to know what the payment's going to be. Right. I've always said people don't buy cars, they buy car payments. People don't buy houses, they buy house payments. And, uh, and I don't know what the answer to that question is, but when Reggie kind of starts down that road, it, it just convinces me that nobody knows with any degree of certainty what the stimulus how it works itself out of the system. I think Jamie Dimon knows a lot more about the economy than I do. And Dimon speculated early this year that sometime around September, the consumer was going to have to, I mean, they're they're going to have to begin making different decisions because the stimulus is is kind of going out of the window. And we've seen what they've done. Uh, Revolving credit is over a trillion dollars today. And this economy has $5 trillion dollars of non-housing debt. Let me say that again. $5 trillion of non-housing debt. Take mortgages and home equity lines out of the equation. The consumer is $5 trillion in debt, and we've argued a trillion is almost a supernatural number. Great television, senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. We are. I'm not going to ask you if uh, Trillion's a supernatural number or not, because i got more important things to, um, to get your okay. opinion on. Um, sure. It seems to me that the Republicans and Democrats are ready to expel um, George Santos. Is that the case? Well, that's what George Santos says. Uh, he, he believes that the numbers are there. 
Uh, you need two-thirds in the House of Representatives to expel a member, and he believes there are enough members uh, that tomorrow when this resolution is brought up will vote to expel him from the House of Representatives. Is there any chance he resigns before allowing the vote to take place? Well, you know, look, uh, I think that the House Speaker, uh, Mike Johnson, has told him uh, it would be best for the party. It would probably be best for you if you resigned. Uh, They've had discussions, uh, at least one that took place over the Thanksgiving break, uh, in which he delivered that message to Congressman Santos. Uh, He is going to have a press conference today. Maybe that is when he intends to announce uh, what his intentions are before this vote takes place in the House tomorrow. Uh, There have only been uh, five other members of the House of Representatives who have been expelled in the history of the House. George Santos would be number six. And I think he's got to think about that. You know, think about that history. That's not uh, that's not uh, you don't want to be a part of that history. Uh, And, you know, I think that, you know, he has to think about that. But, you know, he's he's an odd guy uh, to, to be quite honest with you. Odd in terms of all the lies that he told just to be elected to Congress and, of course, He faces more than a dozen federal criminal counts against him uh, that have been brought by the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. So he's dealing with a lot right now. And but but John, in all honesty, I mean, when I read some of the um, some of the reporting about, you know, they're going to vote this way and they're going to vote another way. I mean, there's no harm. I mean, if you're a Democrat wanting to play politics and Washington's a town of politics, I mean, having a liability like that around with an R beside his name, you you, kind of you hesitate whether you want to get taken off the table or not. Is that fair? Well, it's fair, but, you know, I, I heard uh, the House Speaker yesterday saying he's concerned about the precedent. Uh, to me, the precedent is having someone continue to serve alongside honorable members uh, who have not committed any ethical violations, uh, who have not committed any criminal wrongdoing, uh, and allowing that person to continue to serve in the House of Representatives. That, I think, is the dangerous precedent. And that's the reason why I think you're, you're seeing members who previously before this ethics report came out about 10 days ago, uh, changing their minds and saying this ethics report is just too much to bear. We can't have a member like that serving alongside us in the U.S. Congress. John, it looks like today that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee of the Democrats. Donald Trump is going to be the nominee of the Republicans. But tonight there's a debate between Ron DeSantis (laughs) and Gavin Newsom, and some Americans are interested in it. What do you make of that? Look, I'm interested in it. You know, you, you talk about the, the two likely uh, nominees for their party in 2024. Uh, one's 81, the other 77. Here's a new generation. I'm curious to see what this new generation has to say. I think uh, for Gavin Newsom, this is a great opportunity for him. Uh, he's not going to be uh, running in 2024. Uh, he's looking ahead to 2028 uh, when there will be an open seat for the White House. And it's a great audience for him, the Fox News audience that, uh, uh, you know, is the largest on cable television. So I think uh, only good things can occur as it relates to this debate for him. And uh, for Ron DeSantis, I think he's trying to take away the momentum that Nikki Haley has had over the course of the past few weeks, not only because of her debate performances. uh, We've seen uh, momentum as it relates to her polling and also uh, the Coke political network uh, throwing their weight behind her as well. Uh, this is one way to, you know, be relevant and to show your relevance and, you know, uh, show that you can go up against 
uh, someone who is the future likely of the Democratic Party. And then we have the regular GOP debate next week that will not include Donald Trump. It will not include Donald Trump. He's skipping that one as well. Uh, We'll know 48 hours ahead of the debate uh, who will be on that debate stage, who has met that threshold of 6% in public opinion polls. We know Nikki Haley is going to be there. Ron DeSantis will be there. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, we'll see whether he can, you know, make the debate stage. Same thing with Chris Christie. Uh, But it's another opportunity, you know, for all of those individuals uh, to break away from the pack for Nikki Haley, for Ron DeSantis in particular. You know, I think that I just don't see any path for Vivek, no path for Chris Christie. And, you know, I think at a certain point you have to throw in the cards, uh, but they seem reluctant to do so. In fact, Chris Christie this past week said uh, he's going to stay in uh, for quite some time, you know, even if he's not doing well uh, in the early states that vote in this process. Uh, I don't don't know what what the purpose of that is, but in in any case, uh, that that is what his intention is. But I'll tune in next week for the debate, you know, and see if uh, anybody has a breakout moment. Very well explained. John, thank you for your time. Have a great day and great weekend, sir. You too, Ken. Always love to be on your show. Have a great day and a great week, and we'll talk next week for sure. You got it. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker, uh, as he does every Thursday morning. And, and we think it's an interesting perspective. I mean, you know, inside the inside. beltway, an old hand at the Washington media. And a professional uh, journalist. A very professional journalist. And a good dude. I mean, a really yeah. good guy. Um, at times... He ruffles my feathers, and I would imagine I ruffled his a bit. But, um, I mean, he, he's, he's a creature of, of Washington. He's been inside the Beltway for many, many, many years. None of us have. And we feel that's kind of an interesting perspective to offer um, to our listeners. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll come back. I want to kind of play off some of that. Drew will be with us, we think, at about 8.05 um, this morning. And, and I kind of want to play off of – what I said earlier, and I did it to provoke. Of course I did. I mean, but, but I believe it. I don't say things I don't believe, but I do say things at times to try and provoke. And when I say it, I don't see a scenario that Trump doesn't get elected president. I didn't say, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say, I don't see a scenario that Trump doesn't get the Republican nomination. I don't see a scenario that Trump doesn't win the White House, but things can change. And I'm offering my observation as a snapshot today right now it's hard to convince me that donald trump's not going to be the president of the united states take a break back in a few 843-661-0937 i'm putting josh on the spot you ready josh no give me your opinion (laughs) of my comments preceding the last break that trump is i mean he's the odds on favorite i mean whether you like it or not i'm not the odds maker right I mean, I don't get to make the odds, but right now in the aggregate, the odds makers have Donald Trump with a 36% chance to get elected president of the United States, Joe Biden at 27% chance. I think Gavin Newsom's at about 13 or 14. Nikki Haley's at about seven or eight or nine or somewhere thereabout. But Trump is the odds on favorite. Once again, I'm a commentator and pundit, not a odds maker. But, but I look at the odds. Now, now, when you look at the right track, wrong track, and the economy and all these other things that go into how the odds makers decide who's likely to win and who's likely not. But what is your take on my belief that Trump not only is – I mean, it's, it's hard to argue he's not going to win the primary. I mean, there's a chance he doesn't. Of course there is. There's a chance I don't make it home today. But I think I will, and I think Trump will win the primary. 
But when I go the extra step and say Trump's going to become the president of the United States again, your reaction is what, Josh? My reaction is that I I really hope so. And I do think and I do agree with you that if like we take this snapshot in time on how the the appeal of Joe Biden right now, uh, the appeal of Trump right now versus all the other candidates and whatnot, he would win if the election were today. Then again, you know, like you said, there's a year for him to screw it up. There's a year for them to kind of pull whatever shenanigans they're going to definitely try and pull, in my opinion. Also assuming, because I, I, I know you've kind of tiptoed around this issue, but I'll, I'll go out and say I do think that the 2020 election was stolen, and I think they're going to do it again. So, uh, and, and to be honest— that, yeah. I, I want to interrupt you. I don't know that I've tiptoed around that issue— as much as I've tried to present you, it in you a said way, you don't know. That, that, well, I mean, I, I just think the when you say the election was stolen, you begin to turn independence off. Sure. When you say there are a lot of questions I have about the 2020 election that nobody can give answers to, I think the independent goes, okay. I mean, that that's a reasonable position to take. I'm thinking about Rev accuses me of this all the time. You're always thinking about winning and losing. Yes, I mean, mm-hmm. I am. I'm always thinking about winning and losing, and I think when you say without tiptoeing around the issue that the election was stolen, there are independents in certain states that we need to vote that are less inclined to vote if we say that that way. I think we're better off, and I think Trump chances even increase more if we say, wow, there were some things that happened back then that nobody's been able to explain to me yet. Let's make sure they don't happen again. I mean, To me, that's a, that's a sellable point. That's a a perspective that the Seinfeld watcher in Pennsylvania goes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. But I think when we say the election was stolen, we allow ourselves to be put in a real small box, and it doesn't help us win the election. It may be therapeutic. It may be cathartic. It may make you feel better about, you know. You may truly believe it. You may truly believe it. But but, but I still believe what, what you truly believe has to be at times in contrast with what gives us the best chance to win. And I think the best chance to win, and Trump isn't going to tell I me, mean, he's going to do what you do. I mean, Trump's not going to take my advice. I mean, if Josh writes down the election was stolen, and I write down there were statistical anomalies that nobody's been able to explain, let's make sure it doesn't happen again. What do you think Trump says? I mean, he's going to say, he, well, he Josh. Listen, he said Josh is, is the greatest yeah, person ever. It, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, And that might be true, but here, here's where I disagree with you on that. I get what you're saying. Uh, but first off, you're you're not running for politics. I'm not running for politics. This is a show, so we can say sure. whatever we want. Fair enough. And also, so I get your perspective on that, uh, on, on the independence. We have to appeal to the independence. And I do think that is important if the elections are fair, which I don't believe they are. So I think the best way to win or to ensure that uh, the election isn't stolen again is kind of like, because I think they're going to try. They're going to do exactly what they They did last year. The best thing we can do is catch them in the act. We need to get, like, people undercover to to get these people on camera and and post these things on Twitter the night of. We kind of had that. We've had that. Not really. I mean, they covered it up. here's Here's what I think needs to happen. You ready? I think Georgia has addressed itself. I mean, I, when I read some of the legislation passed in Georgia, I'm not saying don't pay attention, don't worry about it. But I, I would be unbelievably surprised if 90% of the voters vote in Gwinnett and Fulton County. I mean, they did in 20. I would be real surprised if that percentage 
of, of Democrat strongholds have that high a percentage of turnout. I think Georgia has done some things. They've done away with a lot of these random drop boxes and ballot drop-offs and harvesting and whatnot. Um, Kahaley told me that there were multiple reports of these big apartment complexes, these government-subsidized housing complexes, that there would be five and six and 700 ballots left in a mailroom somewhere. Well, I mean, we know what happens <coughs> Excuse me, when that's the case. But, but I, you know, I think you've got to, and this is going to sound lousy, I don't think there's anything we can do about Philadelphia. Nothing. I mean, no, I, I don't. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything we can, I think what we need to do in Pennsylvania is hope Trump is ahead by five. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a lousy strategy. So you mean to tell me you're throwing the towel? Kind of. Yeah, I kind of am. I believe they're so good at it in Philadelphia and some of the Democrat precincts. I just don't believe you're going to stop them from doing whatever it is they do. Precinct hustling. Uh, you know, that's a fa- it's ballot harvesting. It's unsolicited mail-in ballots. It's chain of custody. People get lost in a lot of that minutia. I don't think there's anything you can do about what's going to happen in Philadelphia. You just got to outvote Biden in some of the rural areas Because of part of the argument in Pennsylvania was that, that they usurped some of the, I guess, the powers of the legislature in controlling and setting up the election rules. And, and it well, seems like, But it seemed like nobody really challenged that. Where were the... Uh, I guess the Republicans in the in the legislature in in the in the state house in Pennsylvania that would have said, "Hey, you guys, what's up with this? Here's what we're I'm in charge saying. of this, and you know, challenging it from that angle." I, I get what you're saying, and on paper and in the spoken word, it makes perfect sense. I think the historical nature of Philadelphia, you're wasting your time. I mean, if we're investing enormous amounts of money and resources and assets and and personnel to try and make sure Philadelphia doesn't do what is historically has done. <laughs> we need to be in Nevada, in Arizona, in Georgia, in Michigan. That, that machine is just too well oiled. I think the machine is just too good. Yeah. I think the machine is that good at making the numbers work like Democrats need the numbers to work. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Hour number three on a Thursday morning. Programming note, we will be... Here tomorrow, next week on Friday, we won't have our delegation hour brought to you by the John <laughs> Fetterman Hoodie Company, nor will we have the delegation hour brought to you by Greystone Property, but rather we'll be at the Hilton in Myrtle Beach living the big life, hanging around with some big shots and big wigs. Right, Rev? That, that is right. That's what I'm told. Yeah, we'll be at the uh, the Fitzrack convention, which Drew McKissick can talk about a little bit. But uh, we're looking forward to that, uh, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow. Good deal. Good deal. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National Party, I think is with us. Drew, good morning. How are you? Man, I'm doing well this morning. How are you guys? Are all you recovered from overstuffing yourself? Yeah, I've recovered from overstuffing, but I got a head cold that won't leave me alone, man. I've been struggling <laughs> here, um, but but okay. we'll, we'll, we'll make do. I need therapy, and you're the guy that I think can help me. You ready? And, and I'm not paying now. I'm going to tell I'm not paying right. you, but but I need therapy. So Well, you know they say that, you know, advice is at least worth what you pay for. It. That's right. Free that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But but very seldom do I get to tell to um someone that I believe has the capacity to make me feel different than how I, I don't like the way I feel about a certain thing and I need to feel differently and I know you can help me through this. So the last Republican presidential nominee not named Donald Trump said if given the opportunity to vote for Trump, the current Republican frontrunner, or a Democrat, he's voting for a Democrat. That pisses me off, Drew. Excuse my French. 
But but what I mean, what do we make of that? Has the party changed that much? Were we that wrong on Romney? Are we that wrong on Trump? What's up with that? You know, I think that has a lot to do, unfortunately. And, you know, you've been in politics a little bit. You've dabbled. Uh, Personalities play a lot in this business. Personal relationships play a lot in this business. And there are just some people who get their behind up on their shoulders, as my grandma would say, uh, and, you know, can't find common sense with a flashlight because of any personal grievances they might have. And quite honestly, I think this might have a lot to do with it. Because, no, it does not make any sense when you sit and talk about policy. If you just took all the names of all the presidents off of all the policies over the course of the last 50 years, there's no way on earth anybody with a semi-conservative bone in their body wouldn't look at what happened uh, between, you know, January of 17 uh, through 21 and not say. Okay. Oops. Oops. Yep. Ah, we lost yep. Drew. Uh, <laughs> I heard click gone. I did too. And, Maybe uh, that was on Drewsian, but I no, suspect both, it's both on our yeah, 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 yeah. So we had a few calls yeah, on holding. Uh, good way. old dependable phone service that we have on this call-in radio show that yep. never frustrates the host. Hmm. Um, can we take a long break, like until six oh five tomorrow morning? <laughs> you want to? Yeah. Could we take like um have a great day? Yeah. We'll be back at six oh five tomorrow morning, and maybe by then we can find another phone carrier. We can find somebody who is in the phone business and can keep the phones running and operating as they should. Um, not that I'm PO'd at all. Not that I'm aggravated about it. I mean, I was in the middle of a not paid for therapy session from a prominent man within the GOP trying to get my, um, uh, my itch scratched about Mitt Romney and why he's chosen to do what it is he's chosen to do and click. Um, dead air comes after that. So anyway, um, happens about every day, but we'll be fine. Right? Yeah. I mean, we're just doing our call-in radio show. Mm-hmm. Phones are hit and miss, and that's that's quite okay. Yeah. 843. Why do I give the number? I mean, well, the, the, the phones know. are apparently working now because I see Well, I mean, uh, I don't think the they are. Ringing. Josh picks the phone up, and then he hangs it back up, and he picks it up, and he, and he hangs it back up. But, um, you know, the carrier's in the phone business, and they can't keep the phones working. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and that's been a kind of the... The uh, that's the way it's been working and not working lately. Is it's it it cuts off and then it cuts back on and then the next several times people try to call yeah, it, it doesn't that's, that's, connect. That's got you know it's kind of like um what were we talking about yesterday? Imagine if you were uh, mediocre and and uh, mediocrity personified Gamecock football. I mean the phones would be Gamecock football. Just keep calling. They may work. Keep going to the stadium. They may win one of these days. Mm-hmm. You know they they may get a little more ambitious than you hoped they were. They may get a little more committed to winning. Than you hope they would, but just keep keep trying. I mean, just keep trying. Keep coming to the stadium and writing those big checks, and eventually we'll figure this oh, thing yeah. out sooner or later. Well, I mean, it's similar to that in this ordeal we have with our with our phones. Um, that was on our end. I think we have Drew back on the line now. Drew, sorry about that. I'm with you. I'm with you. now. How much of my diatribe did you hear or not hear? Well, I mean, I, 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 I was ranting while you were ranting. I would imagine <laughs> I'm ranting at the phone company that can't keep the phones working. But, but no, you, you were talking about personal grievances and getting your butt on your shoulder, yeah, yeah. so to speak, and not allowing yeah. to think clearly because of that vendetta. I think that's true. And again, when we look at the, you strip the names away and you look at the policies, there's no way that a conservative looks at the policies and doesn't think that that was good stuff versus voting for a Democrat. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, especially, especially, I mean, not, not 20 years ago, 30 years ago, especially today, for God's sakes. 
when you see how much further and faster the Democrat Party has moved to the left. Uh, makes no sense whatsoever. That's personal grievance, in my opinion, and quite frankly, some people just need to get over it. Well said. Appreciate you saying that. Okay, let's go to the current race that we're all paying close attention to. I looked this morning in November of 2011, and the reason I brought Romney up is I went back and looked at an NBC News poll, November 2011, Obama's at 49, Romney's at 43. The reason I looked at 11, Drew, the last time a Democrat incumbent was reelected, uh, Romney was at 49, excuse me, Obama's at 49, Romney's at 43. Today, the NBC November 2022, uh, uh, yeah, 2023 poll has Trump at 46, Biden at 44. What are we doing better? Or is it all about Biden's failures? I think it's a mix. Uh, it is a lot of it's on Biden, a lot of it's on the economy. Uh, and a lot of it is on, I think, again, what people have just seen, you know, again, in the last several years with the Democrat Party that's just moving that much more in a radical direction. Uh, you couple that now with what we've seen, you know, uh, on a foreign policy stage since Afghanistan and what we've seen at the border and now what we've seen with, uh, you know, these, you know, protests and in some places riots going on in favor of Palestinian terrorists, basically, uh, led by, you know, a lot of young leftist radicals, I, I think that's going to, quite frankly, tear their party apart uh, uh, in ways that people aren't thinking about right now. You know, you saw that riot that they had outside the DNC about a week and a half ago. Uh, and keep in mind that the Democrat National Convention is going to be in Chicago this year. And remember what happened back in 1968 at their convention in Chicago. They had riots that basically tore their party apart. I, I think that they're looking at some major, major problems. Uh, between now and their convention next year, because the young folks in that party are the radicals. You know, they are the activists. They are the junior staffers, if you will, even in Congress and you know in the administration. And those folks are not friends of Israel in, in any situation. Uh, and the more the, you're going to see more and more pressure, I think, from his party on Biden, basically just to to abandon Israel, and that's going to cause more consternation in the party, more of a breakup, uh, and you're already seeing, uh, you know, primaries result in their party because of this and the split. So uh, you know, all these things mixing together, I think, are bringing his numbers down. And again, you know, people are looking at where they are now versus where they were, you know, four years ago. And that makes a difference. Drew, the Trump, hypothetically, the Trump campaign hires me to come see you and convince you uh -oh. to let's end this thing now. My story would be, Drew, no, no, at no time in Republican primary history has a guy had this big a lead for this long a period of time. Look at the national level. He's at 60. Look at Iowa. He's at 45. Look at New Hampshire. He's at 43. Look at yep. South Carolina. He's north of 50. How do you respond to, to me coming in as a paid operative trying to convince you to let's end this thing now, figure out a way to say grace over all the disagreements we've had, circle the wagons, and beat Joe Biden in November 2024? So when it comes to the nomination process, that's that conversation is up to the candidates, you know, the party. And as you know, that this is this is not run by uh, effectively, especially at this point, the national party. This is a series of state contests, whether they're primaries, whether they're caucuses or conventions where they're going to elect delegates and bind delegates to vote for the candidate who wins their respective contest in their respective state. Uh, and those states then, those delegates are going to get together next July. 
so you know, RNC has no control over those contests. Those are run by state parties. But you know, the point is, if you short circuit something artificially, you know, it's one thing if the candidates get together and agree to something. It's another thing then if you short circuit it, and candidates and supporters of various candidates feel like they weren't able to have their say, they weren't able to make their case then it makes it harder to put the whole thing back together after the convention is over and have a united party and go win. Uh, so, you know, people have said, hey, why do we continue to have debates? We should just do, you know, what you just said. Well, you know, again, uh, it, you know, the, 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 this is about putting together a stage for the candidates to make their case on, not to decide who should or shouldn't be able to run. Because, again, if we do that and people feel like they couldn't have their say, then they're not going to get on board after the convention's over, and then we could potentially have a divided party, and that's what we have to avoid. But, Drew, when does a candidate not deserve the right to be heard? I mean, I'll agree that Trump, DeSantis, Haley, maybe even Ramaswamy, yeah. I mean, they're players. People want to hear what they have to say. But you've got another guy, Chris Christie, I'll call his name, um, going to New Hampshire, telling everybody how bad the Republican frontrunner is. When does a guy not deserve the right? to sit at the big table and, and enjoy the benefits of being a legitimate presidential candidate. I mean, he's at about 3% nationally. Mm -hmm. Well, as far as, again, as far as the delegate contest goes, that's up to state parties to make decisions about, you know, who can get on a ballot. And generally they're pretty open. You, know, you get enough signatures or you pay a filing fee, you get on a ballot. You know, that's pretty, you know, should the threshold be raised process, if you will. What, well, when you talk about, say for instance, let's talk about debates for a minute. So the next debate we have is next week in Alabama. Well, the threshold for that debate now has risen to 6%. So you have to be at 6% in early state poll, 6% in a national poll. Now, as I understand it so far, three candidates so far have at least qualified for that. Uh, the fourth one that is on the bubble because of poll numbers, as far as I understand it, is Chris Christie that you just mentioned. So I don't know if he'll make that because of those numbers. We'll have to wait and see. If the poll comes out that has him at 6%, then okay, he's met the number. But it's been raised in the previous debate was 4%. This one is now raised to 6 um, You know, But again, the rest of the stuff, when it comes to running for delegates, that's a state-by-state -state contest. And, and again, keep in mind, you got to be able to put this thing together after it's all over and have a unified party. And that's a whole lot easier if everybody felt like, you know, I got out there, I gave it my shot, and I came up short. Okay, I'll get on board. That's a lot easier conversation to have. That's very well explained. Part of building the machine to help Republicans get elected, you guys have been kind enough to invite us. Next week will be Thursday night in a hotel. Yes, Friday sir. morning we'll be hosting our show at Hilton in Myrtle Beach. Tell our listeners yep. uh, what that event's about and, and how they can help. So basically it's a South Carolina GOP version of CPAC, if you're familiar with that, the Conservative Action Conference in D.C. Well, this is our version of that. We'll have training uh, several days, uh, grassroots training, candidate training, communication training, you name it. I want folks to come and learn how to be effective in the political arena and then also be able to hear from candidates and hear from other good speakers on key issues that we're dealing with in South Carolina uh, as well as nationally, uh, from election integrity to uh, uh, issues of, you know, of school board, running for school board and things of that nature, uh, and presidential candidates that will be there as well. Uh, we've rolled out, I think, four of them so far, waiting on a few more confirmations. You can go to scgop.com slash conference, scgop.com slash conference, and get the details. We'd love to see you. Drew, we really appreciate your time. I apologize for the phone snafu, but um, good to have you back, and we'll Thanks. see you, I'm sure, live in living color Friday morning. Yes, sir. Y'all have a great one.
Thank you. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair and co-chair of the National Party. I give Drew an opportunity because a lot of you folks believe that Drew and uh, Ronald McDack can get everybody in a room. And I mean, these are big egos. These are big organizations. These are, you know, um, important figures in American politics today. And I mean, you don't walk into that room and say, hey, Nikki, sit down. I need to talk with you a second. Uh, Ronnie boy, sit down. I need to talk to you a second. Um, hey, Trump, uh, sit down. Come over here and let's talk. I mean, I wanted you guys to understand because for a long time, I believed that the party apparatus could kind of drive the train one direction or another. But the campaign primaries are driven by the candidates and their campaigns. And I just wish we'd raise the threshold. I mean, a guy six percent doesn't have a chance to win the nomination. Uh, maybe twelve percent. I think you get more of an intense. And, and it's unusual this year because Trump's chosen wisely to not participate in any of the um, of the debates. If Trump were to lose some ground, he'd have a decision to make. I mean, if we had two debates and Nikki or Ron DeSantis went from, let's say, 17% to 31%, then that's bad strategy. But when they have a debate, DeSantis goes from 17 to 16, Nikki goes from 13 to 15, Trump goes from 47 to 49, why show up? and risk something adverse happening uh, to your campaign. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. The phones are working, right, Josh? We're back in business. As far as we know. The Rev has made a note. Spectrum, you better be on your P's and Q's <laughs> at the a, end of this show. A phone call from Rev, me. You should have seen the veins popping out of the back of his hand when he was making that note to him to himself uh real quick i want to make sure we um do our job here we're talking about the complexities of politics the complexities of life one of the most complicated elements of our life is health insurance we know how complicated and expensive it is um covid didn't make health insurance real real expensive it was already that way uh before we had before we had covid um christian levis is somebody worth your time worth making a call um, if you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, you owe it to yourself to inquire about what sorts of services Christian offers. 839-888-3970. Let me read that number again. 839-888-3970. Or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. Realchoicehealthcare.com. So we've talked a lot this morning about where you think Trump is. You've read some polling and you think that he's in a better place than he's ever been at any point when he is running running for or been president. Now he has been through the ringer. I mean, they put him through everything. He's got 91 indictments over his head. Uh, there's just all this coming at him. They've impeached him twice. So what do you make of the election, right, Josh? <laughs> they certainly did. Stole the election, yeah. says my young buck Josh. Yeah. Well, how, how do we agree we're gonna say it, Josh? Say it, say it my way. Let me see how you say on. How you say it your way? Statistical anomalies that we can't explain and hope not to happen again. Statistical anomalies that we can't. It's my best attempt. <laughs> <laughs> cannot explain and it's, won't try to. It's easier to say the election was stolen, right, Josh? It certainly is. I think it's less popular in independent land. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but that, but in, in, the, in, in that context, how is he still, as you said, you believe, He's going to be the next president. Well, I, mean, I think he's a political blunt instrument, and I think the world is ready for that. Uh, the country's ready for that. Here's what I think is a 
this is the second chapter of the book. I mean, the first is Trump gets elected. The second chapter is uh, the changing of the sentiment of the American voters. So you're right. The media has said he colluded with Russia. The media has said he mishandled classified information. He incited an insurrection. He obstructed justice. The media has said um, his family got paid from Saudi Arabia and all these stories that have just, I mean, we've had one after the other, after the other, after the other, and he's still the front runner in the Republican Party and the odds-on favorite to be president of the United States. Here's what I think has happened, and Josh could answer this better than I. I believe that the American people still listen to what the mainstream media has to say, but they don't pay it any attention. But they still listen to what Lester Holt says, but they don't believe him. They don't buy what he's saying. Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, um, Tucker Carlson. Uh, you, you ready? Cat turd. I mean, that, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. yeah. Th- those guys have more influence now. In other words, they appear to be more trustworthy than the esteemed journalists that have historically reported what the facts of politics are will be. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a there's a RNC. Excuse me. There's a real clear politics story today. Uh, Thursday, November 30th. It's kind of an aggregate. They've got, I'll give you an example. Henry Kissinger's Century, Niall Ferguson, Wall Street Journal. Kissinger preached and personified real politics. Martin and Rutherford, Financial Times. Um, military contractors create censorship plan in 2018. Um, and, and then you go down. Megyn Kelly's new media moment. I mean, that, why, why is that there? I mean, why is Megyn Kelly's real clear moment Media moment, Philip Wegman, real clear pop. Why is that on the same list as NBC News? I'll give you another. DNC has no cars to play except arresting Trump. I mean, that's a story in real clear politics. Guess where that story came from? NBC News? No. ABC News? No. The Wall Street Journal? No. New York Times? No. The Washington Post? No. The Joe Rogan experience. Those, mm-hmm. those people have overtaken... The, the, the what I'll call the legacy media, and Josh's generation believes that Joe Rogan will shoot him straighter than the report of NBC News will. My kids believe that Tucker Carlson's more of an honest broker. He kind of wears it on his shirt sleeve. I mean, Tucker doesn't say, hey, I'm going to be fair here. Tucker says, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to report the truth. But here's my opinions of certain things. And my opinions are based in my understanding of what I believe to be true. That's kind of my out. I mean, that's always been my wiggle card. Um, you know, my opinions are my opinions, but my opinions don't come out of thin air. I mean, my opinions, I think, have, you know, intellectual underpinning and are substantiated in what the truth is. So when Joe Rogan writes an article, DNC has no cars to play except arresting Trump, 10 years ago, that doesn't see the light of day. I mean, that would be an extreme article. That would be why. I mean, nobody reads that. Well, now Josh's generation cares more about what Rogan says what Tucker says, what Elon says, what Peter Thiel says, then they do what Lester Holt or Dan Rather. And, and it's been hard for Rather to digest. I mean, it's been real hard for Joe Scarborough of Morning Joe on MSNBC to, to, to address. Um, no, they hate it. Oh, they, they but, 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 it. When, but what I'm saying they, is... They, they don't have as much control as they if did. The, if, the, if the American public believe the media, Trump's done. I mean, he's done. I mean, he, he's a political caucus i mean there's no existence i mean there's no place for him to run but trump nationally right now real clear politics november 30 you ready trump nationally 61.3 percent 61.3 percent that's an absurd number 
Now, you're right. Primaries aren't national elections. They're state by state by state. I said yesterday, and I'll stick to my guns. Let's go to Iowa. Trump's at 47%. DeSantis at 17.3%. Nikki Haley's at 14.3%. You know how much money Tim Scott spent in uh, Iowa? He's still in fourth place at 6%. I mean, Tim, that's where he staked his stake in the ground. Tim may run for governor. Um, so Ooh, Really? Yeah, I could. Um, so anyway, um, if Trump wins Iowa, where does anybody else go? I mean, I understand the party doesn't call it off. It's not a fight. You don't throw the towel in. You don't say, hey, you're, you know, uh, walk toward me. I can't. Okay, the fight's over. I mean, you don't get to do that. I understand it. But at what point in time do Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, Christy has nothing to lose. I mean, Christy has nothing to lose. Where's he go from here? Home. I mean, he's a relic. He's a dinosaur. Plus, there's a lot of buffets out there in America. In that's, not, uh, that's not nice. <laughs> and that's, that's ugly. <laughs> Come on. And we're, he earned it. we're, we're the, the, the show of decorum. <laughs> oh, we are. Okay. Yeah. Josh, let's take a break. I want to come back and go through a little bit of what, what I think Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina could represent, not for Trump, because I think he goes 3-0, and but for Haley and DeSantis, and why, if they want to play in the next election cycle, they've got to be careful about what they do in this first three states of our of our primary. And, and during this break, I need to go check and see what Cat Turd has posted lately. No, you, you and about 10, 20 million other people. Right. Yeah. Take a break. Back in a minute. I want to go to the previous segment because maybe we stumbled on something here unintentionally. Josh, maybe the reason that Trump is still as effective as he is, and, and whether you like him or not, you can't disagree that he's effective. I mean, he's the front runner for the Republican Party. He is the front, the odds on favorite. I like to say that. Front runner is a bad word. He's a front runner of the primary. He's the odds on favorite to be president of the United States. But maybe we've stumbled on something here when we're talking about the, um, the, the organization that we've historically trusted. I mean, if we trusted those people, we would have thrown Trump to the curb. I mean, if we trusted that he colluded with Russia, if we trusted that he incited an insurrection, if we trusted that uh, the, the, these, these 91 indictments were legitimate, I mean, we're not fools and morons. I mean, we're not, I mean, despite what the left says, Trump supporters aren't cultists. I mean, they just aren't. They're, they're pretty damn loyal. They're pretty intense. Now, Trump believes it's him. I'm arguing it's the movement. I mean, they're, they're, Trump is a, an embodiment of an anti-establishment sentiment that I think the establishment has never, ever, 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 ever accurately estimated. I mean, I think it is a thousand, a million times more intense than they could ever imagine. I think when Jamie Dimon tells publicly or says publicly, even to my liberal Democrat friends, I'm asking to support somebody who's alternative to Trump, and that's Nikki Haley. I think Jamie Dimon is smart and, and, and understands finance at a level that I'll never understand. But I think Dimon doesn't understand the damage he does to Haley's campaign when the Wall Street banker personified says, hey, she's the best alternative to Trump. I just think he's oblivious to that. I mean, they, he doesn't eat at the restaurants they eat. He doesn't go on vacations where they go on vacations. He doesn't live the lives that the masses lead. Um, but but uh, talking about his credentials, what would be his interest in publicly being against Trump? If but, Trump was a former president and a uh, potential and probable Di- Diamond, future president. Diamond is one of the guys that gets in the room when the big decisions are made. And they build the machine. The cathedral. Breeze, but he's also, Breeze talks about that as much as I do. The cathedral. Big he business, is a cathedralist. Big bank. Sure. You know, Trump was somewhat sure. favorable to big well, business, I mean, right? But, but, but Trump is somebody that they're not sure they... 
can tell him what to do. I mean, they know they could tell Obama what to do or Bush what to do or Romney what to do or McCain what to do. Um, they're not sure they can tell Trump what to do, what to think, how to behave, um, who to tell, who not to tell, um, where to go, where not to go. And I just think there's still a, an absolute, and I don't understand this, how you could underestimate the effectiveness of Donald Trump as a politician. I mean, I understand how you can hate him. I can understand how you don't want to be president, but I, for the life of me, don't understand how there's still some people out there of above average intellect who believe that he's not an effective politician. I mean, he's an unbelievably effective politician. And whether Josh is right or not, I mean, Donald Trump in round one of being a president got 61 or 2 million votes, increased that number to 75 million votes. I mean, that, that's, how is that not effective? Now, we can say, well, I mean, they got 81 million. Okay, I mean, you, you, you know, if you believe 90% of certain places vote, then you believe that. There's no need in me trying to convince you otherwise. You're not going to convince me that something statistical anomaly happened <laughs> that we can't explain and never will be able to explain. But, but I think Trump is a little bit like Elon Musk. I mean, I don't think he's, well, I don't want to be careful here. I think Elon Musk may be a genius. I don't think Trump's a genius. I mean, I think Musk is a genius. I mean, if you listen to Musk talk much, he'll talk about, you know, blank you, Bob Iger, and then he's talking about, you know, um, thermodynamics and, and jet propulsion. And not just because he read an article in Reader's Digest. I mean, he understands it. He understands propulsion. He understands thermodynamics. He understands nuclear physics. I mean, that, that, he's a genius. I mean, for all practical purposes, I've never, ever, I, I, I don't know what his IQ is. I mean, I don't know that he's taken an IQ test and made that publicly known, but it's hard to argue that Elon Musk is not a genius. Uh, he's a loose cannon, which is kind of fun, to be honest. A genius billionaire loose cannon is good for talk radio. Um, that's huh. real good. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit like Trump, right? I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, he's, he's kind of like Trump, but he didn't run in for office. And he does have this, even the, even the left um, that doesn't, respect Trump because they wonder if he's that smart or not. I mean, how did he stumble on that successful business? Well, he probably screwed a bunch of people and did a bunch of things he shouldn't have done. And all. Nobody can deny the raw intellect of, of Elon Musk. So when Musk buys Tesla, excuse me, when Musk buys Twitter, all of a sudden somebody the left can't call dumb because that's their argument. We're not, dumb, we're, we're not smart enough to see through Trump. I mean, they don't say it, but they say it, right? I mean, we've heard it over and over again. It's not, hey, Ken, you don't understand. I mean, if you were as smart as I am, you could see through that craziness. Oh, the uneducated voters, the uneducated, white working class, smell of it, Walmart. Yeah, all of that goes into that basket of deplorables that Hillary talked about. I mean, if you let a liberal speak without interrupting, they'll eventually tell you who they are. So when you let Hillary kind of ramble, sooner or later she says basket of deplorables. I mean, they'll tell you exactly who they are, but their perception is the Trump voters are not smart enough to see through the BS. They are. And the joke's on all of us. I just don't buy that. I think the Trump voter, the, the, the great mistake the American left is making is believing that every Trump voter loves Donald Trump. I know a lot of Trump voters that don't care much for Trump, but they're more committed to the I, I guess the the weird word of the revolution, you know, I want to be a part of really changing, radically reforming uh, the system that has governed our nation. You know, I mean, the Kissinger years, 
He died at 100 years old. There's some celebrating his life. There's some just going like, wow, okay, he was somewhat of a mixed bag. Well, I mean, join the club. I mean, if you live 100 years, you're going to be a mixed bag. If you live 50 years, you're going to be a mixed bag. Josh, 26, you're going to be a mixed bag at 26. You're going to be a uh, – you ready? You ready, Josh? Work. You're going to be a mixier bag at 50 than you are 26, <laughs> and it's going to get even mixier. Um, at the age of 100, you just, you just see a lot of sunrises, sunsets. You do a lot of things. You make more mistakes. You get more things right. It becomes more complicated to live as long as he did. But, um, but, but Elon Musk, aside of saying what he said yesterday to uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin, he said, and I quote, um, because they're talking about the, um, the animus that people have toward Elon Musk. And Andrew Ross Sorkin is basically saying, Elon, would it be easier to be one of us? I mean, you've got more money than we do. Wouldn't it be easier just to show your card at the Sky Club? You know what I mean? To, I mean, to, 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 to fly. Wouldn't it be easier just to be one of us? And Musk says, I don't have any problem being hated. I mean, if it, you know, and, and then he says, and I want to quote this because I looked it up. When he talked about being hated, um, and he was talking about trustworthy, he admitted he should not have retweeted that, that tweet. I mean, he admitted I made a big mistake. I mean, I, I put, a, I put a, a, a bullseye on my back. I should have known better. I'm not anti-Semitic at all. There's nothing about me that is anti-Semitic. I didn't go to Israel's an apology tour, but but I should not have retweeted or, or thumbs up, whatever it does. You know, I mean, he he moves the meter. I mean, he owns the joint. When when Musk tweets, people pay attention. But he says uh, the last thing that I found so interesting: um, I have no problem being hated. Let the chips fall where they may. I won't tamp that to anybody to prove I'm trustworthy. I mean, that's what we want to say. But all of us live these transactional existences. We, we've got a boss. You can't got afford a, to you say You can't it. afford to say that. I mean, th- there are some things I'd love to say over the airwaves, but but i got to be careful. We, we've got sponsors. We've got affiliations and associations, and they may feel differently than I do. And we are associated. We're not speaking on their behalf, but we're speaking about certain things and 10 minutes later speaking about them and their product. And you have to be very, very careful. Elon Dutton, and Elon goes on to say this, um, and you can tell he got a bit frustrated with Sorkin, uh, talking about the environment and humanity and, you know, being good person, bad person. He says, I've done more for the environment than any single human on earth. And Sorkin looks and he said, that's right, I said it. I've done more for the environment than any human on earth by building Tesla and um, SpaceX. Uh, it's hard to argue that he is not. But he's kind of, to me, the moral of the story of this segment is when Elon Musk speaks, nearly everybody listens. When Lester Holt speaks or Dan Rather speaks or George Stephanopoulos speak, only the left listen. And I think that's why Trump is still the 800-pound gorilla in the political world today. Take a break. Back in a few. Falling down 
Kids are out of school. There's magic in Motown. The city's on the move. In Jackson, Mississippi, to Charlotte, Carolina, and all across the nation. It's a peaceful Christmas time. 843-661-0937 is our number. I wanted Josh to hear a little of the song. He gave Charlotte, Caroline, right? I mean, that's yeah, just I forgot ground, that was right? in there. Yeah. What is the most southern city in America? Most southern city. What is the most southern city in America? I mean, if the rest of the country thinks of the South, what city do they think of? And then... When Southerners think of the South, what city do we think of? Atlanta. Okay. Really? But Atlanta would be the new South. Yeah, but would you mean, agree with is, that? Now? It is the South. I mean, it's, the, it's really the biggest city in the South, By right? far, yeah. It's yeah. the economic center of the South, biggest airport, busiest airport, blah, 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 blah. Um, I think there are 16 or 18 international companies who have their U.S. headquarters in Atlanta. I mean, it's a big economic hub. It's a big city center, blah, 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 blah. Um, do the Southerners, I had this debate yesterday with a good friend of mine, a good Gamecock buddy of mine, and we were talking about um, the challenges of being a football program at the SEC. And I got a buddy of mine who works in the USC Athletics Department, and he says, I can't explain this, but we're not as Southern as they are. So what do you mean we're not as Southern? South Carolina's as Southern as it gets. He said, well, we used to be but we're not quite anymore. And we are Johnny come lately to the Southeastern conference. I've always said, Rev, I don't want to get on this Gamecock uh, football tangent, but I've always said, cause you've asked me this before, what should be our ceiling? Well, I mean, when you, when you look at the, the realities of Gamecock football, Auburn and Mississippi, I mean, I think Gamecock football should aspire to be at least as good as Auburn and Ole Miss every year. I mean, you know, Ole Miss is not, I think they won back in the day a national championship. Auburn's won multiple national championships fairly recently with Cam Newton. Um, but I think that should be, I mean, if all things considered, Florida, Georgia, Texas, Texas A&M should be better than about anybody. And I'm talking about the South. But um, 
but, but the argument he tried to make is it's not, it's not generational. Southern football to the Southern football program is not generational. I went to my favorite burger joint Saturday to watch the beginning of rivalry day. I mean, I'm a big college football fan. I wanted a hamburger. My wife went with me and we sat down and they've got all these televisions. Now it's, it's, it's real crazy on Sunday when all the NFL games are on and they've got the game name below each TV. Don't do that in college. We're in the South, but it's different. Well, the coast of South Carolina South, I've never gone into that restaurant or sports bar that every TV was on one game until Saturday. And Every which game was it? TV was on Ohio State, Michigan. Exactly. Half the building had a Michigan hat on. The other half had Ohio State jerseys on. I mean, I, I, I kind of stumbled in with my Gamecock sweatshirt, and they were like, who are they? Who was that team you pulled for? And that doesn't happen in Alabama. That's not the case in Louisiana. I mean, we have, I mean, we, we are a newer, different sort of state. And, and his argument is, you know, it's just, it's different now. We're not. I don't want to say we're less Southern, but we've been influenced by things that are not as historically Southern. Um, Charleston, to me, when I think of Savannah, when I think of Southern cities, I think of Savannah, I think of Charleston, uh, Nashville. It's kind of a, um, it's one of the dynamic Southern cities. And there's no doubt Atlanta is the, is the economic hub. The, you know, the, um, I mean, it, it's just a big, big, big metropolitan area and an ever-growing metropolitan area. But I think the South is perceived by non-Southerners as one way, and then Southerners perceive the South in, in quite a different way. And as you try to figure out the SEC, um, I mean, the, the ACC is different. I mean, Clemson fans don't have to digest this. I mean, the majority of your conference is, I say the majority, a lot of your conference is above the Mason-Dixon line. That'd be an interesting, how, how much of the ACC is below the Mason-Dixon line, how much of the ACC is above the Mason-Dixon line. Um, but the SEC is Southern. I mean, it's Southern, Southern, Southern. And my argument, or my buddy's argument is, we're not as Southern as we think we are. I mean, this isn't John C. Calhoun's, or Strom Thurmond, for that matter, South Carolina. It's a different animal. And when I walk into that sports bar, and there are 30 Ohio State jerseys and 20 Michigan baseball caps, and every TV in the joint is never on the same game, never on the same game, <laughs> except on that given Sunday when Michigan and Ohio State were playing. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina, good morning. Hey, fellas, what's going on? Hey, Anthony. Uh, Ken, I was just thinking of a day because, you know, I'm a truck driver, and I listen to a lot of talk shows, but you probably the only one I ever heard ask your audience how they feel about the guests, and and different questions like that, and that was I like that man because you wanted I input on the people that you bring on the show, and nobody else does that. You know what I'm saying? But I, I was just thinking about that, and um, a lot of the people on your show that come on your show, some of them, not all of them, they kind of sound like AI. They sound like they're still on the job as a politician or the head of a job. Every now and then, you'll have someone that sounds like. Basically, you or Trump. I mean, we the people are tired of AI-type candidates. Like that, Amen. Um, Amen. The debate thing you had. Amen. And to me, that's like you're, you're an actor. I'm saying you are on the camera zone, and you're acting. Everybody can talk without cursing. So all we ask is you talk without cursing and keep it real. 
But um, my second thing is, Ken, uh, I don't believe, and maybe your uh, people listen too, I don't believe we ever, ever going to change things by getting someone to go to Washington, by voting somebody in. I believe we're going to have to, and the history of America, the people got to uprise and do stuff. Just vote somebody in, it'll never happen. Um, one more thing, too. You said that the prices would never go down once it gets so high. I don't, I don't believe that. I got a program. It, 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 it's kind of like the same program like Walmart and Amazon use. When you buy, or when you got a lot of people that's willing to buy for you, you can sell cheap because you're selling so much of that product. And that's how Amazon, uh, Walmart came along out of the blue and got all the customers at Amazon the same way because they bought so many. We as a people have to find companies and support them and let them know that you have at least 25 million people that's going to support you. So you can lower your prices because you're going to sell more of the product. But see, the only problem with that is we don't have a true media that will report that and make that movement happen. But my last thing is, too, is um, I know you're not going to believe this. So this is for, for Josh. I was leaving my house this morning. There's an interview with Elon Musk on, I believe it was, it was on uh, the NBC channel this morning. This guy that was interviewing him, his name is Scott, no, Brian Scott somebody, some crazy name. It's probably not even a real name. But I ask anybody that's listening right now to go online, look at that interview. Whenever they show that um, the interview or Brian, whatever his last name is, talking, take your cell phone and take a picture of his face. Because my wife did it this morning. I know y'all not going to believe me. Take a picture of his face. When you zoom in real good on his eyes, one of his eyes is blue, one of them is brown, one pupil is round, and one pupil is slanted. Don't think I'm crazy when I say this, but do it for yourself. Look at that interview with Elon Musk that you were talking about earlier about Elon Musk. That same interview, his name is Brian Skydiggy, uh, some kind of long, crazy name. But please look at that interview and take your phone and look at his eyes real good. I would not lie to you. I've been calling too much. I ain't going to lie. But like I say, we would never vote change, true change into America. The AI going to come. The 30 million immigrants going to all be voted in. Whatever we hear on the stringence of reporting, it is going to come. Because there's nobody, there's no way we're going to vote somebody in to change things in time for America. We the people have to make change. And... That's all I got to say, Stella. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. You know, to, to the caller's point about callers, I mean, I, that, I mean, I told Rev two hours ago, I mean, I, I felt today would be slow. I don't know why. I just, it's December-ish. I mean, in the day, the last day of November. How I many people, yep. I, we get in this, I don't know. I mean, I told you that once Thanksgiving gets here, people are less inclined to be as tense about their politics. I don't know why. I mean, I've been in, in politics and around politics for 20 years. Registered when I was 40. I've been around it about 20 years. And every single year, the intensity level begins to drop the day after Thanksgiving or the day before Thanksgiving. And we get in this celebratory, you know, holiday mood. We don't, uh, I don't want to argue with Josh about something. I, you know, I'm going to go shopping. We got a Christmas party. I want to be nice. I want people to be nice. I don't want to argue about these things that matter. But we'll get back to that in, in January. That's why I believe it's going to be hard to, to, to create any sort of opposition to Trump because once we get back in January, I mean, it's it's caucus. 
I mean, the 15th is two weeks, and you're not going to move the meter, but so much. And I know they're going to buy a bunch of television ads. I mean, if I'm running Haley's campaign, I don't waste my money between now and Christmas or New Year's. I don't. I mean, I, I just flood the market with ads after January 1. I'm not saying you don't get any bang for the buck, but you, you got to maximize your value. Well, maybe she doesn't now that the Koch brothers and Jamie Dimon and Bill Ackman and Ken Langone are on board. Um, you know, money's the mother's milk. Well, she tapped into a pretty lucrative faucet of, of money there. So, I mean, you know, she'll be incredibly well-funded. But I, but I told Rev a couple of hours ago, the callers stimulate me. And by that, I mean, uh, I mean, I'm talking and I'm in talking mode and I'm going down this road a million miles an hour. And my head is thinking about 10 things and I'm talking about five things. But when you call, it allows me to listen. And I become, I mean, as cerebral as I can be, which ain't much. I mean, I'm aptitudely challenged. I accept that as a, a handicap moving forward. But it does allow me to kind of slow down and instead of just thinking about the next thing to talk about, the next story to cover, what did Elon say? What did, you know, what's this guy's eyes look like? Or that guy's pupils look like? I, I can listen to what you have to say. And very often you help inspire the rest of, of the show. And I am proud that the one thing we do is try to force callers and guests to be who they really are. I don't want you to come in here bubble wrapped. I mean, I don't want the call to be bubble wrapped. I don't want you to be careful about this or that or the other. Um, Josh kind of nodded his head a bit ago when I said people pay more attention out of Elon Musk, Joe Rogan. I mean, they dropped the F-bombs. We can't play that on the radio. Um, I mean, you can't play Rogan, period. You can't play Bill Maher. I mean, you can't play any of these guys for three minutes for fear of, you know, I mean, it's just one of their words. It just is. I mean, I, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But I know we can't play it on the radio. And you're not going to play two or three minutes of Rogan without getting that. You're not going to play two or three minutes of Bill Maher without getting two or three of those. And that's kind of their chosen word. I mean, that's the word they go to when they need to um, more clearly explain whatever it is they're, they're talking their about. Point of emphasis. But, but Josh, I want, I want to go there with you. Who moves the meter for you? In, in, in the world of media, I mean, you're a, you're a digital native. You've never lived in a world that didn't include Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and, and Twitter and the, digi- the internet. I mean, I had, to, I had to migrate. I mean, I remember the day that I said, wow, this newspaper in my hand is a lot harder than clicking on that website, you know, making the effort to go get a newspaper. Um, you've, never, you've never had to struggle with that. You've never said, out with the old, in with the new. This has been a part of your life. Who do you listen to? Who do you pay attention to? Who moves the meter? When you have these thoughts and premises and beliefs, who challenges those for you in the medium? Mm. A couple of them I can't say at risk of getting fired, but uh, I guess (laughs) (laughs) uh, Joe Rogan is kind of a big one. I definitely think uh, Elon Musk is – yeah, you know, it's it's kind of the biggest. He he's the biggest. There when he are a says things, you consider what he says seriously. Oh, absolutely, okay. Joe absolutely. Rogan. When Joe Rogan says things, less so. Um, I actually I think Bill Maher is a little bit more intelligent than Joe Rogan. I I think he is more incorrect. Uh, Highly but, intelligent, though. But he isn't. V- he very is, intelligent. He is smart, or he is very. He's eloquent enough to come across as smart, and he's he's respectful enough compared to other people. So I like 
I I'd never really listened to him, but you know, when he talks, I Ro- listen. Rogan is kind of Bill Maher meets MMA. Yeah. Bill Maher meets UFC. <laughs> Bill Bill Maher with 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 bloody knuckles. What I like about but you're Joe not calling Rogan, Rogan dumb. No, no, he's not stupid. I think he's a very thoughtful person. So he is interested in talking with lots of different kinds of people who who have crazy like you know non mainstream crazy beliefs. Alex Jones, perfect example. Four, He's four had hour podcast with Alex Jones. You can't turn it off. I know. You yeah, can't. He, you he can't talks with people away. that believe in Atlantis, and and you know it's like I don't believe in Atlantis, but I watched that whole interview. You know, it was fascinating. It was cool stuff. So there there is appeal to that. Um, but like you said, yeah, I think Elon Musk is definitely the smartest of all the people I just mentioned. What do you make of Tucker? Oh yeah. I didn't even think about Tucker. Um, I'm actually not as big a fan of him as you guys are. Uh, he's definitely the best, um, in terms of the mainstream, even though he's not as mainstream anymore. Uh, but I, I definitely think he is interesting. He, he, he seems more concerned with truth, uh, the truth than most people most people are interesting let's take a break we'll be back in just a few moments in an age and era where conformity um is boring and we do things differently thank god for donald trump and i mean that sincerely thank god for trump and and kind of unveiling it this new way of doing things out of that comes a, a lot of broken molds and non-conventional ways of of campaigning and running for office uh, we're having a cam excuse me we're having a debate tonight between one guy who's running for president as a republican and another guy who's not running for president, but it's um it's kind of a red state versus blue state debate that a lot of people have interest in. We have with us former chairwoman of the Massachusetts Republican Party, Jennifer Nassour. Jennifer, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me on. How are you today? We are well. What universe do you believe how will have an interest in this DeSantis Newsom debate? <laughs> Um, I'm not sure, and and I think you explained it phenomenally at the beginning, which is DeSantis is running for president, and Newsom, well, I mean, I think we all know he's running for president, but he's not a declared candidate. And is he running in 2024 or 2028 is to be seen. Um, but I, I, you know, for DeSantis, it's I think that there's a, a, a opportunity for this to go very poorly for him and to be very negative. And Newsom has nothing to lose. I think the real winner in this is Sean Hannity for, you know, being a genius at thinking up this red state, blue state debate. Um, and at the time that he thought it up, it looked like it was a race between DeSantis and Trump and that DeSantis was the Trump alternative. And what we've seen is his polls have slipped, you know, considerably. And Nikki Haley, coming from your home state, um, has gone up considerably. And so I don't, I don't know where the interest is in this thing tonight. We didn't know the name Barack Obama until he gave a speech at a Democrat National co- Convention. Uh, we know the name Gavin Newsom, but could he have a breakout performance, seem to have a command of the issues, eloquently you know, speak and force Democrats to reconsider who their nominee will be November 2024? If I was Gavin Newsom and I worked for him and I was his advisor, that's exactly the angle I would be taking here is that Joe Biden may not make it to the convention next year. And if he does, does he know the difference between a human being on the stage or a flagpole? We don't know, right? And so why take that risk where you have Gavin Newsom, who is 
you know, I, I don't like his policies, but he's a good looking guy. He's in his 50s. He's wealthy and he's he's swarmy. He has a you know great fake smile. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's he's winning there. And I think he can present himself as a very viable alternative to Joe Biden. Let's have a behind the scenes conversation in the public. Um, you're a, a former uh, chairwoman. I am a former elected official in Republican lore. Wouldn't we rather run against Joe Biden than Gavin Newsom? Oh, any, I mean, any day of the week. I don't know if I, I think that that, listen, that's how we feel, right? So what do you think the Democratic Party, <laughs> for you and me, what, if we are going, go on the other side and get into their head, if you look at those poll numbers, right, every, every Republican beats Joe Biden within the margin of error. Nikki Haley beats Joe Biden by a substantial amount, especially in those, in those swing states. So if you, you know, if you are on the Democratic side and you are at the DNC, you are thinking to yourself, hmm, Joe Biden is a little too close for comfort here. And we're not really sure what his cognitive state is going to be in eight months. And so should we maybe think about who we're going to replace him with and run those poll numbers and see any generic Democrat against a Republican who is in the lead now? You question, as I do, why DeSantis decided to do this, but there is a chance that he highlights the record he has in Florida in contrast with what happens in California. What is the best-case scenario for Governor DeSantis? Well, I think the best-case scenario for him right now is that he doesn't shoot himself in the foot, right, that he comes off a little bit more likable than he has in the past. And that is really a big issue, right? Voters, voters, whether we like it or not, likability is an issue for voters. And I tell people all the time when you're watching a debate, turn off the volume, shut the audio down, watch the people on the screen, check out their body language, see how they are relating. And, you know, for DeSantis, he's come off very angry. And Newsom comes off as a suave Californian celebrity, right? And so is DeSantis going to rattle Newsom enough where where Newsom is not I I just I don't see the upside for DeSantis I just think that this that he can absolutely highlight the difference between Florida and California Florida is so much better and let me tell you I live in a blue state it is terrible I don't I don't advise anyone to you know move to blue states um red states are definitely the way to go and but DeSantis isn't running for governor of Florida he's running for president of the United States you have to appeal to 51% of those people out there that consider themselves independents. And can he do that? I don't know. Last question. You're in blue state, Massachusetts. I'm in red state, South Carolina. What do you make of Trump maintaining such a big lead for so long? Well, I think, you know, the Trump support is a Trump support. And I think that that is a number that, um, you know, people enjoy the policies that the former president had. However, I, you know, I'm, I'm substantially younger than Trump um, and Biden, and the average life expectancy of a man in America these days is 76. And both of these guys are much older than that. And, you know, I respect the job of president. I respect what Trump did. Um, but I think that those poll numbers are people who really enjoyed Trump as president, his policies, However, I think when the rubber meets the road, you have to look at who can actually win in a national election. And the numbers between Biden and Trump are really, really close. And again, I don't think it's going to be Biden. I think it's going to be someone else. And I think that that ends up for me as a mother of three girls makes me feel very uncomfortable um, betting on such a close election. 
Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate your time. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Take care. I think we may have just stumbled on a Nikki Haley voter that didn't want to say she was a Nikki Haley voter because she wasn't sure how this host may have felt about um, former Governor Nikki Nikki mm-hmm. Haley. Look, Nikki has acquitted herself well, and we thought she would. <coughs> she's a talented politician. I mean, she, I, I knew she would do well, but she's not. I mean, it's 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 not the truth to suggest there's this this upheaval, this groundswell. She's gone from what, 11, 12, 13 to 14, 15, 16, maybe 17, a little better in um in New Hampshire. And I looked at the latest South Carolina poll. Um, you got three people. You got Trump at 53. You got Haley at 24. You got DeSantis at 11. If DeSantis gets out, which I predict he will, you've got Trump at 64, Haley at 31. Isn't it interesting, though, the perception? Because she repeated that what we talked about, kind of the mainstream narrative about Nikki Haley. And when she was talking about she's had this swell of support. And so her perception as a as a Republican in Massachusetts, of all places, is that Nikki Haley is is on this meteoric, meteoric rise. Okay, let's go back to Josh here for a second. Here's where I think is cooking. Um, I think people my age if not a natural contrarian, are more inclined to trust the typical voices, the traditional voices. I I don't have any idea. I mean, if you asked Americans one question, are you a contrarian or not? I mean, I think Josh would answer yes. I I mean, I think I would answer yes. I mean, I I know I'd answer yes because I kind of wear that with a badge of courage. I don't know how Reb would answer that. I mean, that's kind of a simple, what do you mean am I contrarian or not? About what? I mean, about, you know, politics, about football, about life, about kids, about you know, cars, electric, I mean, what, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to grasp that, that people aren't skeptical about everything. I mean, that's just my nature. It, so, so I don't know that I'm a good person to advise on, you know, why, why, why do people buy into this narrative that Haley is surging when all she's doing is getting a bump? I mean, there's a difference in surging and getting a bump. Nikki's got a bump. I mean, there's no doubt about it. She's gone from, once again, 11, 12, 13, to 15, 16, 17. That's not surging. I mean, Trump's gone up from 53, 4, 5 to 57, 8, 9. Have we heard about the Trump surge? Not a word. All we've heard is DeSantis is in decline and Nikki is ascending. That's accurate. I mean, there's when you track and, and look at the trajectory of the two campaigns, DeSantis was in second place and he may not be today. I mean, I still think in a national campaign, DeSantis is probably still the second most likely candidate to win the presidency. But but I just believe the reason most Americans buy into this, you know, Nikki surging narrative is most Americans aren't highly skeptical, that they're not contrarians. They kind of sort of believe that when someone with a nice suit and a good haircut and, a, you know, a, a big job at a media outlet says things, there's probably some some truthworthiness there. And I just don't. Um, I think that's why Trump, I mean, that, that's kind of my counter argument. The reason Trump, has endured all of these, I mean, I don't want to say falsehoods because some aren't. I mean, some are not false. Josh, do you believe Donald Trump mishandled classified information? I do. Do you believe Donald Trump obstructed justice? No. Okay, but I mean, do you agree that's a fair debate? Sure. I mean, I don't think it's fair to say he incited insurrection. I think it's very fair to say he peddled fantasy. I think it's very fair to say he may have had a hand in convincing some people this was more legitimate than it really was. So I'm not skeptical of the point of just believing everything that Trump and Trump world says. I mean, you know, I, I believe he mishandled classified information. 
I believe he obstructed justice. And it wouldn't surprise me. Let me ask you this, Josh. A better way to ask. Would it surprise you if Trump obstructed justice? No. <laughs> okay. That's probably a better question. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise you in the world. No. I mean, would you expect if somebody at the White House contacted Trump and said, hey, we need to come down there and look at all those boxes of stuff you got. We think you may have some things you don't, uh, you aren't supposed to have. And he told one of his underlings, hey, take those two boxes out of there. They're coming down here from the water. Would that surprise anybody? Not at not all. A, of course not. That wouldn't surprise anybody at all. So that's baked into the cake. So this investigation is going to show some of that to be true. And the majority of Trump voters are going to say, well, I always figured that. I mean, I always figured the moment he hung the phone up with whomever at the White House, the Department of Archives, that he went and hid some of those boxes. Of course he did. He's Donald Trump. He thinks that stuff belongs to him. He may want to build a hotel one day and decorate a lobby with some of his memorabilia. I mean, I, no, nobody would be surprised at any of that. But I believe that most Americans find it too complicated to be skeptical and contrarian. And most Americans don't look for trouble. So I'll take the easy way. I mean, if the guy's on television, has a nice suit, a good haircut, and graduated from a night, he must know what he's talking about. That's good enough for me. But, but something's happening in America today because if that were... If more and more and more people were of that ilk, Trump would not be leading in the Republican primary. And this is my phrase of the day, the odds on favorite to be elected president of the United States. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Renee in Florence. Good morning. You're on. Yeah, hey, I was just going to say, the reason why they keep pushing Nikki is for the low-information voter. You know, the one that is... Uh, only listening for the sound bites and perception is reality. So if they say it enough, and they are, and they keep telling the same thing over and over, that's what people are going to think. So that's all I got to say. Oh, and one more thing. Hey, it's uh, Cooks for Christ today, and I'm actually out delivering plates. So come out and get some chicken bog and support a good charity. Thank you, Renee. Appreciate that. Yeah, uh, Beverly was with us Tuesday. Uh, earlier this week. Yep. and um, It's the I'm West at- Florence Fire Station, the old fire station on Pine Needles Road. I think they're open uh, until 6 tonight for uh, lunch and dinner pickups. They're doing their typical good work. Interesting that a woman called in about Nikki Haley. I always find that interesting. It, it, it's fun to, but it's fun to spend, you know, and, and we very often, and I guess having been in the biz for a while, you, you got to remind yourself, man, that, that it's not all about abortion with women. It's not all about, um, you know, whatever uh, transgenderism with men. We, we treat these, these these certain voters certain ways that are so insulting. I mean, it really, you know, African-Americans, you don't think they care about the economy? Hispanics, you don't think they're bothered by the, the mass invasion on our southern border? I mean, imagine if you're a Hispanic that came into our country legally. I mean, you should be more offended and probably are. Um, but, but very often we look at these, these subsets of our electorate as exclusively. I mean, you got to be right on abortion with these females. What about taxes? What about education? What about infrastructure? You don't, care, you don't think women care about potholes and education and taxes? Of course they do. They absolutely do. Hey, is it time for our winer line? Which is not it's really a winer line. for the Wake Up Carolina winer line. Brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? I've just in my local advanced auto parts, and they're saying that they used to raise prices, you know, a quarter or 50 cents. And I said he just went around there and raised the price of a tool, six dolls, and he said some things are doubling in price over the last couple of weeks. 
So we're fixing to hit another big inflation that they just hadn't made it to the marketplace yet, but it's coming. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the good news there, Weiner. I um, <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, yeah, the adjustable wrench that was, you know, $8 is now $14. It was for, but it depends on what quality. I mean, there are different qualities of, of tools and wrenches and whatnot. I just don't see any scenario. The only thing that could happen is if some of these startups get in business. In other words, all these, we, let's use the wrench as an example. You know, these parts houses are, 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 are selling the adjustable wrench for $14. It was 8 now it's 14 but some new guy says, well, I mean, I can buy that adjustable wrench for $3. I'll go back to selling it for 6 or 7 or 8 and they disrupt the marketplace. Same thing with sub sandwiches. You know, if these people who have, you know, endured COVID, lived through uh, some of the stimulus and the inflation that came along with it, somebody that was not in business will say, I'm tired of paying $12 for a sub sandwich. I can make one for $7. Mommy, that may be some of that startup disruption could enter uh, the marketplace. I think that Carolina coach ought to get his walking papers just like that Carolina Panther got hit. He's been at Carolina three years. I've been a Carolina fan all my life. And that was a disgraceful game if I ever seen one. I don't think he's going to ever make it at Carolina. This is his third year. He had here uh, several uh, Florida State players, Bell, and another player, I can't think his name, sitting on our bench last year. And you see they started for Florida State this year. I just don't understand the man. He should have played, he should have played Sellers in that game instead of that friggin' little quarterback called Ratley. That ain't nothing. That is my comment. That's that's a true line. I mean, that that's a true line. I mean, there, there's yeah. no doubt about it. Um, I, I'd give Shane longer. Uh, you know, let, let's see how this thing plays itself out. I think there's a a cultural, institutional, human infrastructure problem at South Carolina. I've gone into great detail. <laughs> I've written about it. I've talked about yeah, it. We'll, I've we'll argued refer you to, over it. Refer you to Ken's Facebook post. Uh, from earlier this week and fitznews.com where he was a guest columnist with his ideas. I just gave my blueprint. I actually shared it with Shane. I have no idea what he thinks about it, but I shared it with Shane uh, first of this week. I will say um, about uh, Lenore Sellers, from what I've heard and what I've gathered from my sources, is that Sellers had a banged-up shoulder and was not available to play in the Clemson game. They did have some packages for him had he been available, um, but from what I'm gathering and what I've heard, he had a bad shoulder, and I'm telling you, the danger of Lenore Sellers or somebody like that, if you're going to try and incorporate them in the run game, by that I mean read options and run pass options, um, you're going to take chances. I mean, he's a big kid. I think there's a lot of, of upside, but I do. I think there's a great amount of talent and potential in Lenore Sellers, but if you're going to ask your quarterback to be a runner, uh, you, you're going to get him dinged up, and one game against Kentucky, they had a few packages, and, and you know, you get – when defensive players have an opportunity to get a shot in on the quarterback, they, they, they tend to dig in a little more than if they get a shot at, at anybody else. My question is, as a woman, um, when you consider the crime of rape, who is the criminal? Who is the perpetrator? Who is the one who has committed the unspeakable act 
against another human being by raping them. My second question is, what happens to that rapist? Um, he is put in prison, he is fed, he is clothed, he's given health care, he's given counseling, he has opportunities to pursue an education, etc. Who is given the death sentence? The crime is committed by a rapist, but in the case of abortion, who is given the death sentence? An unborn baby that did not commit the crime. That is, um, that's a lot heavier than Gamecock football. Yeah. Rest <laughs> assured. In no time. And we, we only we, got about 20 or 30 seconds it. here to wrap this up. Hold on to that. That deserves an answer. I'll do the best I can tomorrow morning. Uh, enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow. Venus Restaurant and Catering, your go-to spot for delicious breakfast and lunch in Florence. Since 1977, we have been serving up fresh and tasty meals to our loyal customers. Our breakfast menu features all of your favorites, from our fluffy pancakes to our fruity French toast, mouth-watering omelets to chicken and waffles. There's something surely to satisfy your craving. And the best part is, breakfast is served anytime. Or come for lunch. We prepare hot,